All right, it's Cleveland Moto Podcast. We are looking tomorrow, going from 28 degrees to like, what, 50 tomorrow? Yep. Like that. Yeah. yeah, this may be the turn. This might be it, guys. <laughs> this could be officially the turn. Or it might not. Or it might not. I'm trail-breaking into the turn myself. Are you trail-breaking into the turn? We're going to talk about that in this very podcast. Um, to my left is? Oscar. To his left? Steve Hoffert. To his left? Pete. And to his left? Chris Smith. And uh, yeah, Renee's drinking a smoothie, so we're going to let her drink it. <laughs> Having a nice protein. Say yeah, hi, how many, Renee. How many grams of protein you get in there? Is that protein? Yeah. yeah. 77. How many, how many grams of protein? 28. 28 grams of protein. And that, that's one ounce. <laughs> that's, that's one ounce. To all of you weed smokers out there, you'll know exactly <laughs> how many uh, grams are in an ounce. Pete, you yeah. came up with that pretty quickly. Yeah, it, is. it didn't have any delay on that <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, we did have some fun. Uh, last night at the shop, we have this uh, Honda Bandit. And uh, this one was so much fun, I called Miss Emma today from the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast just to share... Every once in a while, you get something that's just so, so freaking crazy that you want to be like, why is this bike doing this? Watch carefully, listeners. Yeah, watch carefully, yeah. listeners. No, but there is an auditory component to it, right? And so you look down the barrel, and there's actually fire Oof. inside the muffler. And then the bike starts, and it shoots a four-foot flame out of the muffler. And now it's just a sustaining, eternal flame. You know, um, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Now, the bike ran perfectly. Like, yeah, the bike ran absolutely perfectly for about 90 seconds, maybe a minute, like two, three minutes. And the bike ran great, no problem. And then, all of a sudden, it started breaking up. The idle star, the mid range started breaking up, and it was no longer fun. And it got worse and worse and worse. And it did get to the point where. About four or five minutes in, anything above 4,500 RPM to about 7,000 RPM was just a chain of backfires. It was just the throttle open and just just boom, 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 boom out the tailpipe. A perfect backfire machine. And like street rod guys, rockabilly dudes (laughs) would kill to have this kind of permanent flame coming out of their tailpipes. And then... We ran the bike, you get the bike up to around eight or 9,000 RPM, 10,000 RPM, and it sort of clears itself out. And it ran good all the way up to the rev limiter, no problem. And, uh, you know, the pipe turned cherry red, but this is a thin wall tubing, so that's not out of the question, you know, in normal operating conditions. Shut the bike off, and Sparky's like, now that we shut it off, he's like, it won't restart it. It's just, it's not going to restart at this point. Well, in this particular case... While shut off, we looked down the tailpipe into that, you know, uh, aftermarket muffler. We looked down the tailpipe, and you could just see hell. Yeah. You could, it was like looking down into a volcano, and there's just all this fire dancing in the bottom of the muffler. Really beautiful. I mean, super cool looking. Yeah. It kind of looks like that Star Trek episode with the planet eater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, it, was li- it was like looking into the tube of Hades itself. And uh, it's where these sausages came from, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Chris made us sausages Ew. that are made of, apparently, Satan's ejaculate or well, something. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's going to give you um, uh, flames coming out of your tailpipe. <laughs> yeah. 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 Same, yeah. Same and so when we relit the bike, when we did get the bike to restart, it just ran a, a three-foot, big, orange Hollywood flame out the tailpipe. Can I take a stab over? Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah. One of the cylinders wasn't firing, and that fuel, raw fuel was feeding right through. Except for but within 10 seconds of 
ignition. We we grabbed the pipes that once were cold, mm-hmm. and they were all equally warm within 10 or 15 seconds of ignition. So we had detonation initially. It, the bike ran fine. Now, here's the super weird part. Less than 45 days ago, maybe at the tops 45 days ago, I was riding this bike around down up and down the street doing wheelies on it. It was performing great. I mean, no this bike... No backfire, nothing? No backfire, nothing. So you broke it. It was running perfectly <laughs> up until last night. So last night, to celebrate the arrival of the customer coming to pick it up today, oh, no. <laughs> we took it out to make sure we'd fire it up and make sure everything's working great, and then we run into this scenario. Now, we haven't done a lot of diagnostic yet, but this all just happened last night. But I am noticing there is a throttle position sensor on this machine, and I'm also wondering if... For some reason, if the timing advance and retard isn't working, so mm-hmm. the timing is retarded when the motorcycle initiates. You know, it's a carbureted bike, but it still has electronic ignition. And I'm concerned or thinking that maybe it's not coming out of retarded mode. So the timing is staying in a retarded mode, even though the motor's warming up, which is affecting the spark timing so much that it's letting a lot of unburnt fuel get passed into the uh, four into one header and the muffler itself. What about a single stuck float? A very good idea is a float that's absolutely stuck. The problem is, when I bring that idea up, of course, what do we all say? You may have one or two stuck floats. Thanks, asshole. There's four carburetors. I've had them all apart in the past 45 days. We've been through this. Three different people have been through these carbs, you know, in the past six months to a year. If you put an IR thermometer Mm -hmm. on them? Yep. The one that's doing that should, it should be cold it, well it may be intermittent i mean at a right. higher rpm like you said mid-range it's not firing right <clears throat> at a higher speed maybe it's not it's partially leaking mm-hmm. and it's the overflow is plugged yep and because i mean that just happened on my tractor today wow. i started it up so i i shut the fuel off yeah and the thing cleared out and it ran perfectly i just cracked the i cracked the uh petcock just a little bit right and i ran it up to get it on my trailer Okay. So, uh, All right. But what would happen is it would it started up and then it would slowly flood out and just start. It just the gas was coming up. It was running and it was sure, it's running time. at full throttle. It would run. Right. If you backed it down to anything off of full throttle, right. it started misfire. So as long as your demand was good and high, you had enough it could, to pull through. It could yeah. drink the fuel faster than it could overflow the float bowl, right? Or overflow where the needle should be operating, right? And then. With these situations, when it when you know it's a problem is when you have a bad condition, you shut the fuel tap off, and then 15 seconds, 30 seconds after you shut the fuel tap off, it runs beautifully for yeah. about 20 seconds, and, and then, then it, it stops it, running into all together. Yeah. And that's when you know your float needle's yeah. not functioning correctly. you got to stuck float. You guys float. did that, probably. Yeah, well, we so. played that game, but, you know, it's easy when it's one carburetor. When there's four carburetors, everything is suspect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, okay, well, when we put them back on the third time, did we pinch one of the rubber boots or the intake manifold or something? And that's, again, why we always go back to the, you know, belabor, the, the, the general malaise of having carburetors is the more carburetors you have, the more ugly, weird things can happen that will all upset the running of the bike. It's only when everything's happening, complete synchronicity, that does we get a good event. Does it have anti-backfire valves? Yeah. I don't, I'm going to tell you, I don't think... You'd get uh, yep. you'd get the pop at mid range if mm-hmm. my anti backfire valve was stuck. So I was thinking about open. a valve that it wasn't either not yeah. going all the way in and out and, or, or getting the, or sort of stuck. Yeah, I want to examine the throttle position sensors for sure. 
uh, because that has an electronic sensor on the carburetor itself. But shouldn't it? Okay, so if the TPS, mm -hmm. if the TPS is at at uh, idle with the TPS off, yes, you should have advanced timing. And when you roll on the throttle, right. mm -hmm. it should retard the timing. Well, right? it should be no. It's it should be sitting at. Uh, when the bike is at normal operating temperature, nominal operating temperature, when you're getting no TPS signal at all, so it's at a dead zero, right? So when you're at a dead zero, the bike should be at its home RPM. So you know if you want to call it 21 degrees before top dead center, that's where it is. And then everything else after that should have an effect. Like if you're running the enrichener, then it should be able to drop back two or three degrees retarded beyond that right. to allow the bike to run on the enrichner circuit and then as you advance the throttle position then it, then it should be advancing the the um, timing as well in conjunction with the movement of the throttle because those you know as opposed to being a uh, a optical analog. sensor on the timing on the actual stator itself you're looking at a mechanical sensor that's on the throttle position itself. Okay, so that's device. an but that's an analog sensor. Yes. on it's not a it's not just an off. I believe that's an analog. It's a rheostat. Yeah, rheostat sensor. Yeah. So I don't know. We're gonna take a look at it and see what it is. But like last night, I told Renee I'm standing outside. It was what was it like five minutes after seven? We'd closed, and I'm like, just call the guy. Just call him. We're giving him his money back. Mm. This bike is cursed. <clears throat> Nobody's allowed to own this bike, and everyone like everyone's like, okay, just fucking put it on Facebook Marketplace for twelve hundred bucks as is. Good luck. Sacrifice your own chicken. We're tired of fucking stabbing <laughs> this bike with screwdrivers. Because at some point you lose money. You know, if you have a bike listed for nine months, and because the bike is listed for nine months, you have to rebuild the carburetors twice or three times, because every time somebody comes out who's like. I'm going to buy that motorcycle. You get it all running for him. And then he comes out and goes, as soon as my mom and my auntie give me the money, and you're like, fuck, I got this bike ready for your dumbass. And now I realize you don't have any money. Well, that happens over and over again. And then the bike sits for three or four months because, believe it or not, in some motorcycles or some motorcycle shops, we don't have enough manpower to ride all the bikes that have been prepped for all the people that say they were going to buy them and don't follow through on the mission. So it's like we prepped the bike and got it ready. It's running great. Come here. Go take the bike for a demo ride. Come back and go, well, all you got to do now, Mr. Dealer Man, is get me financed. And here's a piece of toilet paper with my credit score on it. And you're like, you just made that in the bathroom. So I know you don't have credit. It's and just smudged. It's though. just a brown smear. That's all it is. Your credit is a brown smear. And then you you don't you don't then take that bike and put it back into storage. You basically wait for somebody to, you know, come and buy it again, and then everything goes fooey. See, that's why uh, vacuum pedicocks <coughs> yeah are, are stupid. Well, you should there should be at least a manual right. backup so you could shut it off yeah. and run it out of mm -hmm. you know, like run these things out of gas. That's an absolute to, minimum. Would be to be able to just shut the fucking fuel off beyond. Just the vacuum shutting it off, you right. know. Even you know, there's nothing wrong with having a vacuum petcock and having a manual override for that thing. Right. Like a lot of motorcycles do. The vacuum petcock is something you can't touch or see; it's just there. And then hiding under the gas tank is a service petcock that we know about. And you know, Honda Shadows are famous for that. 
there will be a petcock that you can operate that's basically on in reserve, where its vacuum is on and off. But then there's a secondary petcock up under the tank that you can turn off and truly deprive it of fuel. So you can run it dry. So it's also good so you can actually take the fuel tank off, despite the fact that your fuel lines are all connected and everything. You don't have gas go all over the garage. So that secondary petcock's good. Is that the brandy? Peach. Peach brandy? Is it good? Yeah. 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 It's tasty? Yeah. Served best in a frozen shot glass? <laughs> yeah. It's very exotic. wasn't expecting it to be so good. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and then Renee was here for the entire podcast. <laughs> Ta-da! Uh, we're excited. We're going to the up to Toronto. So we're going to the zero dealer training. I know we all talked about the zero oh, motorcycles. Yeah. Um, a little bit last week, didn't we? We did a little. We did. We worked that one just a tad. And, uh, oh, thank you so much, Chris. Let me try this. This is like communion. Hey. Cheers. Ash you to all you Catholics out there. <laughs> Giddy up. Yeah. All these fucking Catholics out there. gave You gave up booze for Lent, didn't you? Well, not entirely. Just during the podcast. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what deal did you work out with Jesus? I didn't work a deal with, I had to work it out with my wife. Oh, yeah? Oh. Yeah, yeah. And she still. She what does the Archbishop she say? She can't totally give it up. So. Well, well, she gave up Steve for Lent. Clearly, she gave it up a couple of times. Look at all the kids he's got. The, uh, yeah. So, so we're not giving up all the alcohol, just alcoholic podcasts. Evidently, Sunday is not a day of Lent. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What you mean? Huh. All the What's Sundays? This fucking foot. I don't know. My dad's really Catholic. He's uh-huh. super Catholic, and he's so Catholic that he gets a pass on Sunday. No, I think every Catholic gets a pass on Sunday. So it's Sunday. a loophole. First I've heard of this. I think oh, it's a no. loophole. I grew up Catholic, and, and that's what we always said. Like, whatever you gave up, you were allowed to, like, indulge on Sunday. Get the hell out of here. Blast it out on Sunday. Wait a second. No, because Advent's different. Advent, it doesn't work that way. But Lent is actually, it's 40 days. Uh, if you look at the calendar. And eight Lent crazy is, nights. Yeah, Lent is 40 <laughs> days. But if you subtract all the... Like, uh, if you subtract all the Sundays, it's 40 days. Okay. But can you lump them all together and have, like, two months of crazy stuff, and then the rest of the year is fine? What the shit? Yeah, can, can you roll all your Sundays together and get right. a, a week? There you go. A week early. Yeah. <laughs> i tell you what's easier. Just give up religion in general. Yeah. I was going to say, I gave my religion up for Lent about 30 years ago. Exactly. Turns out it works out great. Last time I, I've never had a relapse. Last time, I, last time I went to church was when I was in the army, and that was just for an hour of peace. I was exactly yeah. in basic training in the no, army. Nobody bothered you. You're in church. Yep. You know it. Every Sunday in basic training, everybody was in that I, fucking I chapel. I was so devout. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, Joel Sargent. I took up two or three extra religions. Yeah. <laughs> what you, He's in there from 19. What are we going to print on your dog tags? What do you got? Yeah. <laughs> Put them all on there. I was telling like Renee. Those flags with all the religions. <laughs> yeah, like 18 dog tags. Yeah. I was telling Renee that I wanted to have him put agnostic on my dog tags. In, in, but in 1987, they wouldn't do that. Was it a thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eh, they just were like, they weren't that liberal. It was like, okay, what kind of, <laughs> what flavor of Christian are you? And I was like, well, if I gotta be a, if I gotta be a flavor, I protest. They went, du- Protestant it is. Du- Dudism. <laughs> Dudism, yes. They didn't <laughs> well, acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah, it is. They, yeah. One of our yeah. guys tried to get Rasta, and they wouldn't let that shit fly either. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, podcast. Uh, I have been a fan of the podcast for many years. Our condolences. Not anymore? No, that's a declarative <laughs> statement. Fuck you guys. Wait, I've been wait, a fan of our podcast for many fan years. fan mail or hate mail? This is 
Male. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll know what it is when I get to the bottom of yeah, it. Or this, br- or this brandy, whichever comes first. Yeah, those always this is delicious, by the way. That is very good. Well, of course good. it is. That yeah. is good. I'm not bringing, you know, so brain this cleaner is, in This here. is brought to your brother, what is a doctor. What is a doctor? Or for, as close as you can come to a doctor. For a, an annual event. So when the guy gets his prostate checked, Whoop. he comes back a week later and produces your this bottle to your brother. He brings no, in he bottles, baby. Bottle. He's that good. <laughs> to check his prostate. That looks like a hell of a bottle to check the <laughs> yeah. prostate with. That is art, that, in our, that right there is an artisanal prostate checker. We're up to the third knuckle. We're up to the third knuckle on that bottle. Wow. You're okay. Yeah, that's right. If you're brave enough. Okay. Um, it's a real party favorite. I think I started listening somewhere within the first 10 to 5 episodes and have listened to every single one since. Wow, what a trooper. I am not, like, my frontal lobe is now damaged. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> not joking. That's like $10 500 hours of your life. <laughs> Send that man a sticker. Yeah. Oh, 500 <laughs> hours. Make it two. Like, that's, that's <laughs> like, that's like, that's like, like a shop yeah. Yeah. That's like 15, <laughs> that's like 15 weeks on a full-time job, oh, you know? Man. Uh, oh, wow. Sick. It is my favorite and first to listen to. Take that, the pace. Uh, so anyway uh, wait they still have a podcast I don't know anyway I have a friend that has offered me a 69 whoa CL70 uh oh it's a keeper you got got Renee laughing at that one (laughs) CL70 that belonged to his dad nice I have one right so this is a 69 CL70 it shifts backwards. 69. This now, okay, now I'm glad you brought that up because this is a semi automatic. No, it's mine's. Oh, is the 69 a semi? Well, it, mine's ooh, manual. It should be manual. You're right. Thank you. But the gear stack is upside down. Right. Right. Somebody put the thing in upside down. Go figure. Um, it's a 69 that's backwards. Ah, hey. Okay. I know nothing about them in general. <laughs> We get a little drum monkey. <laughs> hey, hit it, drum monkey. <laughs> I know nothing about them in general. I know about as much about this one. All I know is that it has been sitting since 1993 in a barn. I know it will require a ton of work. I disagree. And in the end, cost more than the bike is worth. Well, that's subjective. I'm not looking to do a complete resto, nor should you. I would like to get it running and to work on it as a long-term project. Don't break anything on it because you'll Don't never break find anything. a you'll, part. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. Are there any parts that are super hard to find? Um, everything the between the front tire and the back tire. Everything else is pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> Those tires themselves are not too hard to find, but everything else is kind of hard to find. Um, just looking for some general advice. Thanks, Michael. Okay, well, Michael... Now where's Michael from? Didn't say. Um, again, oh. not Casey Kasem around here. That's right. 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 The, uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, Michael is just Michael with a 69 CL70. So the thing with the CL70 is, well, what do we know about that bike? That's the folding bike, right? That's the bike that you could take and... <clears throat> Hold on. Body it's of Christ. It's a high pipe. Yeah, it's a high pipe. Yeah, it's a high pipe. And you could fold the handlebars down and stuck it behind the front seat of your pickup oh, truck. Mm-hmm. CL? CT would be... Oh, sorry, CT. Mm-hmm. You're right. I'm confusing CLs that. and CTs. CL, CL looks is... like... Um, uh, S90. It's an S90. It's yeah. a tall wheel. Yeah. So it's a tall wheel. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, you can get the carburetors from China. And they're okay. I mean, they're fine. Go, go to DR. I tell him all the parts he needs. Yeah. Well, you can tell him. He's uh, listening. Oh. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, there's a website called drtv.com. Okay. 
They sell high quality parts for all the horizontal uh, engines for Honda, That's and a- they they'll sell them for CL70s, uh, C70s, all that. That's a great website. Doctor ATV. Yeah, Doctor ATV. That's good to know. Yeah. And you can buy points because, and you have to buy. Mm-hmm. I would say buy points and condenser just to start. And with. just yeah. you know what? Don't screw with the carb. Just the just carbs are thirty six bucks. Right. Just replace it. And the carbs they sell are pretty good. But yeah. what I would do is, and what I did with mine, which made it a lot better, was the um, the main the jet holder and the jet. I pulled that one out and I put the original uh, main jet and jet holder in because it has. Cross different holes. pattern. Yeah. It's uh, the other one's got like two hole like uh, the original one is co- they call cross drilled. So it's drilled on the nineties. Right. So when you look at the diameter of the, the the mixer tube, it's drilled on all four directions: north, south, east, and west. Where a lot of the Chinese ones are just drilled on the north and south. Right, and it so, gives you better. It gives you way better. I mean, for me, I think mm-hmm. it's a smoother. Like a, a, the ramp. Yeah. Up is a lot better, and uh, it gives me a higher top end. So. Sometimes I think that with a lot of the aftermarket Chinese carburetors, the Chinese have sort of built these things down to be mega efficient, and they've kind of the original ones were meant to run really, really well. So that's it's better to just have the the original jet stack, which does drop right in. So that's yeah, it screws right totally in. worthwhile. And it's weird because the original jet stack is brass, mm-hmm. and the yeah. new stuff is. It's almost like mystery. It's like a, it's not like three hundred four. It's almost like stainless, but it's mm. not. It's like a lower grade stainless than three hundred four. When we did our, I don't know what it is, but it's weird. Ages ago, when we did our Bajaj, uh, our Bajaj POC pipe, our HMF POC combined effort exhaust for a four stroke one hundred and fifty, we had to find a jet that would work in their jet stack, and it's a it's an interesting jet stack. Uh, essentially, it's a we couldn't find a main jet that was the right size for the damn thing at all. We had to go into the uh, jet ski community. Hmm. And in the jet ski community, they're not brass. They're made out of uh, stainless steel. So that's probably what they were. Uh, yep. So the jets we look like shipped a, out were not brass. It doesn't look like a 304. It looks mm-hmm. like some weird... Maybe it's 152. Shiny. Well, there's different... That would be brass. I don't know if that's a, a great... That's half a 304. would be half a 304. <laughs> Sorry. The, uh, so a question about this one. See you, Renee. Bye. Bye. So a question about this one that I have is, I've never owned one that was as early as a 69. Are those, do they have a 6-volt battery on board? They have a tiny 6-volt. Yeah, like tiny 6-volt. Like and so that is an important thing, too. Before you start even trying to start it, make sure you have a 6-volt battery in place. Yeah. See, I didn't, I thought they only made them in this country in 72 and 73. I did, too. I thought they were an early 70s thing, and I thought that when you got back to 69, I thought you were probably going to be looking more at a Super Cub. Uh, well, Cub, like the one we have in the window over yeah, there. The, the red would one. be up here. Yep. So it could be a, like a, is it a S? Uh, SL? I don't know. No, an it's SL an would be like a dirt bike. Right. I mean, it could, I mean, if the pipe comes up like that, yeah. then it's a C, CL. Right. But I was thinking like an S90, like a S90 versus a CL70. Yep. I mean, like, because they look very, some of them look very, like, they share like a common like backbone yeah. with the the frame itself is probably engine. the same. Yeah, but, yeah. but even the CT one ten does right. have the six volt teeny tiny little battery. Yeah, yeah. So and the they, wi- yeah. The, I warn you, the wiring will be so brittle <laughs> yeah. that you do not want to. You don't want to right. screw with it. Yeah. You just want to pull that battery, yeah. the existing battery out, yeah. and you just want to do the very minimum. Mm-hmm. And the new batteries don't use the same terminals, yeah. so you have to put different uh, ring terminals yeah, you have to on. Put, yeah. You, and what I did was I uh, 
I put plug in so right. that you could actually remove the battery and put yep. it in without disturbing anything. And, right. Even um, if, if you put little bayonet connectors on it, so the original batteries from Honda, the battery itself had wires that came out of the battery, and the battery had right. the wiring harness built into it. And so the replacement batteries all had these two dopey wires on them with two bullet connectors, I think they were, and the bullet connectors would invariably turn to dust and fail because it's just a corrosive environment. It's a wet lead-acid battery. So when you pull those things out, nobody sells that battery anymore other than a few replica companies. Yeah, they used to be okay. uh, square, and square now, they, now they're flat. Yes, exactly. And they're like uh, half, the, half the width, but they're also slightly taller. Right. Well, you can so, use any at this point. You can use any low amperage six volt, you know, security lighting battery, right. uh, alarm system battery. It, you can use freaking um, lithium coils if you want. But the trick is remember that if you're going to go lithium, that the charging system on this is going to be a little wild. So it's going to be eight volts to five volts, eight volts to five volts, which a lithium would probably not respond to that too well. Better to do um, an AGM or security system battery that can take those wild voltage spikes. I've put uh, capacitors in. There's no turn signals on this thing. So Mine really, has turn signals. Yours, the 69 does? About my 72. I was going to say, I know the 72s do, yeah, but I'm I don't think sure. the 69s do. Because yeah. my 69, I have a 69 um, Honda 50 uh, step through with the, the dealer custom kit, with the dealer uh, high tank kit and all that stuff. My 65. Yeah. I want to say my 65 has turn signals on, but it was a factory option. Oh, yeah. Right, a C102 is a Super Cup, but but the C100s didn't, and I think the C102s had turn signals. Yeah, and I know that some of the C100s and stuff that early age had the little optional kit with the blanking plates on it. Yeah, but it's pretty cool, cool, though, because the lights are in the handlebars. They're built into the handlebars. Like these ugly... Square things. Oh yeah, come out the and they're very stuff. they're very delicate. They're very streamlined because right. they're built into the handlebars too. So the early Honda stuff is very sexy. Um, that's neat, and it's a cool that a podcast listener has something. I mean, that is really only exciting at AMA Vintage Days. Yeah. Like you know, around the rest of the world, a CL seventy, CL seventy. But you could you might get you might have sex at AMA Vintage Days because you have a nineteen sixty nine CL seventy. Can he? If a middle aged man responds, <laughs> yeah. You ask him, can he tell us what color it is? Oh, we know it's red. We know it's red and white. Come on. Maybe silver and blue. Oh, that's true. Okay. All right. But it's likely that he's, yeah. I'm betting on silver and blue. Okay. All right. Because yeah. that's the, what uh, I have. I like the silver and blue one. Um, interesting about AMA Vintage Days coming up. We're going to be bringing a big RV, and I know some of the our friends from Misfits are going to be coming out. And now uh, Chris Ashworth Crash from the Cafe Racer podcast is talking about joining us at AMA Vintage Days as well. So, super exciting. Chris will not let my damn glass go dry on this peach schnapps. Good uh, man. Man, good man. <laughs> I think technically well, we have to say it is schnapps. That's good. It's, yeah, All it's right. It tastes yeah. like schnapps, it's doesn't it? does. Yeah. Anyway. That, your, your, your poor sausage is cold. Well, no, I can't. That, that sausage, I was burping so much I couldn't talk. My that sausage hit all those like involuntary fluxor things that you have in your body that are like I'm burping, I'm farting, I'm doing everything I can because the sausage is a little twitching. Yeah, habaneros like you see, I'm clearly Scottish, Irish, Northern bullshit thing. Like habanero is not part of my operating system at all. Yeah, I get that. If, if I eat a pepper, that's true. And I got, habaneros aren't too bad. Yeah. But if you get one of those ridiculous ones that, you know... Oh, with ghost stupid, pepper or whatever, I don't even know why stupid. you would even eat yeah. one. 
but I can eat them, but I get the hiccups. I do too. That's where I was at with this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Here, dude. I'm not going to eat it. And do not mix it with I'm not going to eat it. Milk. <laughs> it's so you think gross. milk? You think oh. milk is going to put the fire out? No, no, it's just gr- terrible things. Yeah, it's just it's going debunk, right? That it's not even a thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's they've already proven that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not on the agenda. Can we ask the podcast listeners to? You know, keep Johnny oh, I remember, So yes. we're going to bring that up. So thank you for bringing that up and reminding us. So one of our former podcast members who's on a temporary leave of absence in Florida helping his mom out, um, Johnny Chrome, all, we all know and love Johnny Chrome, he got in a Malachi Crunch down in Florida on his Moto Guzzi V7 Cafe Racer bagger. Yeah, for real. And, man. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, and he's in he's in hospital jail right now, yeah. so um, he is bedridden. He's got broken tibia, left foot, left arm, or left leg, tibula, fibula, couple of ribs, clavicle, scapula. Yeah, so all those are broken. He needs he's getting multiple surgeries. Um, he is not dancing around and enjoying himself in Florida. This is a, a tough thing. The way that it was described to me was that the person in front of him stopped suddenly to go, like, observe a, a yard sale uh, as Florida, you know, Florida. And the person behind him did not acknowledge the sudden deceleration of the two vehicles in front of them, and he got put between these two vehicles. The bike is bad. I mean, the bike is totaled. So uh, I got some pictures of it. The, the forks are not paint, pointing the same direction. The frame, the rear of the frame is like, it's like a Bosuzuku bike. You know? oh, it's not awesome. And what I think that we're going to do is, in the spirit of Cleveland Moto, uh, fuck GoFundMe, because they take a cut, right? Yeah. So why should anybody take a cut of Johnny Chrome's money? That's some bullshit right there. Would you believe that Johnny Chrome's PayPal account is Chrome at me.com? I don't believe that. Well, can you say it again? Johnny Chrome mm-hmm. at me.com. Okay. This huh. is PayPal account. So if anybody wants to send Johnny Chrome oh. a beer or the dollar equivalent of a beer mm-hmm. or a bottle of his favorite or the dollar equivalent of his bottle of his favorite, screw GoFundMe and all this other stuff in between that's going to take a cut of your charitable donation. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure 100% of your love goes to Johnny Chrome. Nobody should ever have a percentage of your love for Johnny Chrome. Uh, send the money direct to his PayPal account, johnnychrome at me.com. And if you've listened to this podcast, you've learned shit from Johnny Chrome. Oh, yeah. So that's the name of the game. We're hoping he calls in tonight. He might. If he does, that'll be awesome. But he's on a lot of painkillers right now. Uh, not the fun kind either. They're the kind mm-hmm. that come in a little button and, you know, you threw an IV in your arm. You know, Stefan's not bringing you these at Porco. These aren't the good painkillers. These are the bad painkillers. It's a level two or level three. This is like the level nine painkillers? Oh, right. shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they make you not be able to call into your podcast. Uh, so please remember, folks, and I'll say it again for those who are slow of hearing, uh, johnnychrome at me.com. So that's there, and uh, you can go ahead and shoot him money and send him money because you know what, you know what happens when you get in a motorcycle crash is you can't go to work. And your motorcycle doesn't work anymore. So you have a lot of things that compound themselves. And having a couple of bucks to throw around really wouldn't hurt at this time. 
And also, when we do send the stripper to break into his uh, hospital room, he's going to have to tip her with something. So, and I don't think you know his uh, bedmates' Percocets are going to be enough. So and he's got a, like a metal rod in the thing that he would give her to tip. Her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, you know, you get pumped full of all those different kinds of things, and your, your body doesn't work the way it used to anymore. So uh, I've been the guy that's been on the receiving end of the tib fib. I've got a mm-hmm. titanium rod in my leg, and it's not like you know three weeks later you're dancing. Uh, this is a real tough recovery. And I've seen Phil dance. He's still recovering. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never, never you'll never see me run. <laughs> That's it. If, if and if I'm running, by all means, take my keys. <laughs> because if you ever see me running, that means my leg doesn't hurt anymore. So that's a real thing, and uh, so anybody, please help out Johnny Chrome because he's, you know, he's a vital part of our operation here, and we got a man down right now. That's we're, and you know what? In fact, we're giving you like fifteen percent less podcast because he's down. So yeah, that's the thing. Um, we gave everybody homework today, as we usually do for the podcast, and uh, I let them know. I let everybody in the podcast know today that we are going to be talking about trail breaking. And uh, despite its name, you don't need knobby tires to do trail breaking. You don't need to be in the woods to do trail breaking. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of what it is. Uh, this comes up because I had a, one of our fine purveyors of our establishment came in the other day and was talking about how he makes sure he trail breaks all the time. He's an absolute devotee of the practice of trail breaking. And he's like, yeah. He goes, I don't believe that. I should ever be in the middle of a turn without having my rear brake on. And I went, and I made the little scratchy noise record thing. And uh, I said, what is this trail braking you speak of? And he said that when he's riding his BMW sport bike, that he makes sure that he drags his rear brake all the way through the turn. Hmm. For illumination or for braking? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that actually comes up. Because we do talk about brake light in the turn, right? And so, no, in fact, he uh, he had misconstrued the concept of trail braking to mean that it was like your trailing wheel, or like you're dragging your paddle, or you're dragging your oar in a canoe. Like it was good analogy. Yeah, yeah well, I like I that mean, one. yeah, well, drop anchor and turn, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what he was thinking, and his he was visualizing it, and. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to read it straight because I wrote it. So once I read it, if anybody wants it, I'll put it on the Cleveland Moto Podcast Facebook page. Um, This is not 100% Phil Waters. I have stolen this from at least five different sources. One of them was the Pace 2.0. Okay, Not the Pace Podcast, but the Pace 2.0. And the other one was an old Cycle World article, and then... Uh, a couple of different training school pamphlets that I had from different uh, road racing schools I've been to. Uh, basically, it's this. Trail braking, it's not what you think it is. Safety is why we do it. Getting hurts sucks. John Crum uh, knows that getting hurt sucks. Um, do you feel like turns are sometimes a crapshoot? Do you hope you've got the right entry speed? Do you focus on getting set up, staying smooth, and coasting through the turn? Looking forward to the moment you feel it's safe to roll on the power. If you relate to this, you are not a bad rider. It's the way we were trained for years. But you can do better. And what we're talking about is for years in the motorcycle safety training program, we were taught that you can spend traction on accelerating, braking, or turning. Pick one. All right? And that's really the way the system was. 
like and I've been in that I've been on that side of the equation as an instructor and I've been there as a student and the idea was you have a certain package of traction and if you are going into the turn you don't gun it through the turn because now you're using the acceleration part of the package and the grip part of the package the turning part of the package and you're going to spin out you're going to lose traction and crash and die and the same thing was believed that you set yourself up on the turn and you basically got off the gas and you kind of coasted into the first half of the turn. Or you're, bre- you're breaking a straight line. You're breaking a straight line, which was always right. a big part of our training was you did all your braking in a straight line and then you let go of the brakes and you do- you dive the bike in, right? And so you took all this braking energy and you let you released it and you rode through the turn and then you gunned out of it. Or back to your traction thing, you're using all your traction for braking while you're in the straight line. Right. And then when you release the brake, you're using all the traction for steering yep. as you lean the bike in. Right. Scan, evaluate, and execute was this thing. You would just look and you'd evaluate the situation. You'd know your danger. You'd, you'd commit to the turn. You'd break, like a, you'd break like a monster into the turn. And then you'd let off the brake and you'd lean. And then you'd find your apex point and you'd gun it out of there. Yep. And you'd drive out of it. And it turns out we can do better. You know, that's not that initial way that we're talking about that method. I'm not going to go as far as to say it's dangerous, but what I'm going to say is you can do better, and you will do better once you start trail breaking. Well, I think you're perfectly safe doing it the way we just saw, yeah. the way we just said. But if you want to be a more proficient rider, if you want to get through mm-hmm. the corner faster, right, more smoothly, more efficiently. Yeah, I think that's where trail breaking. is. it's an advanced technique. It is an advanced technique, and that's exactly right. But I say in the case where you need to do it, mm-hmm. you have that available to you and so that you could maybe you have to go through it faster right. than what you would normally be able to go through. Or if you get into trouble in it, then at least you have a, a, a separate thing to, yep. you know, like it, it's got to be uh, muscle memory, though. And I'm, at, I'm five years into a five year, I'm five years into a lifetime experiment of trail breaking. And there's a couple of motorcycles that I ride more regularly than others, and I've observed my tire wear as compared to my old way and the new way. And I've also observed my corner speed and my feeling of control in the corner has changed dramatically since about five years ago when I started adopting trail braking as a daily ritual as part of how I make every single turn. And by the way, this I do this on wet roads as well. I, I mean, I don't just do it on dry That's roads. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Have you noticed that it's better for some street scenarios, like either snow or rain? And what or it doesn't dirt? work on is gravel. Okay. No, I mean, that's Duh. that's yeah. what it comes yeah. down to. Is <laughs> I've tried it, and it is not an effective technique on okay. gravel or off-road in, at all. It's still, I still am in the point it and grip it and rip it method of off-road driving. Okay. But on asphalt, on asphalt, whether it's wet or dry, what I've determined is the trail braking works better, and I am in control of the beginning of the turn, the middle of the turn, and the end of the turn, as opposed to being a passenger through the whole middle of the turn. And right. then just kind of going, well, I hope this goes well, because this is where I am. And the biggest thing for me is the thing we're going to be talking about, suspension. So there's no actual penalty on the street. You know, on the racetrack, yeah. If you're riding old school way on a racetrack, if you're doing a track day and you're not trail braking, the people around you are going to let you know. So that's just the nicest way to say it. Uh, If you are on a track day and you come into a corner and you are learning the track and you come in slow, 
and you're not trail breaking and you're not using power in the middle of turn and you run out of steam, your line is going to drastically change because it's your velocity that holds you out in a turn. When you lose velocity, your body and your bike just goes all of a sudden. It tightens the turn up. You can run onto the infield pretty easily if you're not carrying velocity through the turn. And it happens to people that are their first or second time on a racetrack. They get into a turn and they see the thing and they're like, wow, this is really a tight turn. So I'm going to go into it like 40 miles an hour. Well, halfway through the turn, they're going five miles an hour and they can barely keep the bike up. And don't ever be on the inside of one of those guys, you know, because they're, they're learning the track. They're learning how to run. So as, as we say that there's no penalty for that on the street because the street is the street. It's not the racetrack. If you're riding with other people and you're a new rider, and we see this when we go out for the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride, and we see this when we go out for group rides, there's experienced riders and there's new riders. And the new riders do. I mean, they say the people around you will have to adjust to your lack of follow-through, and they'll probably pass you in the next straight. Don't give a fuck about them. If you're new, you're new. Just ride your own damn ride and don't get in over your head. This is an advanced technique. But by advanced, I mean if you've been riding for a year, you should be doing this. It's not a 10-year advanced technique or a 20-year advanced technique because it's such a smart technique on controlling your turn from the beginning of it till the end of it. And more importantly, like we found out riding in Mexico with your friends, is these guys trust their tires way more than I do. (laughs) And they apparently acknowledge the existence of burros and zonkeys and shit, but they don't care. They're still coming around the corner hell-bent for leather and then they're like, oh, well, if there's a zonkey in my lane in 26 feet around the blind corner, I'll just fucking deal with it, right? Then. But, you know, then you're not really prepared to deal with it. You're, you're at coasting, you know. You have no brakes engaged. You have no suspension engaged. So we're going to get into that real quick. Now, here's the thing that we're all frightened of. Go ahead. Okay. And it, does this apply to ABS, traction, bikes with traction control, traction control? Man, with ABS, Pete. ones with no ABS. Look what's uh, happened. Everything. So, yes. so I just no, you're right. Because the gamut of, so here's uh, the rule about ABS. If your ABS system is working correctly, yeah. the only time it should work is when your wheels are going different speeds. Right? Right. Okay? And if your traction control is working correctly, the only time your traction control should be active is when your wheels are going What's different speeds. Right. So if you're trail braking, your wheels should never be going different speeds. Because they never lose traction. Exactly. Right. Because you're maintaining a traction package from the start to the finish. And at no point in trail braking, unless you overcook it, and your name's Troy Corser, right? Or, you know, Slide Boy McCoy, uh, you're not intentionally stepping the back of the bike out to make a turn, right? You're not drifting the motorcycle. And trail braking actually comes from a car drifting technique. You know, so if Cameron was here, we'd be talking about an, a car with an emergency brake where you can literally feather or pump the emergency brake, the, the rear brake, to heat up the tires and to induce a skid, induce a drift. And also in car driving, it is not uncommon to use trail braking as a concept to load the suspension and heat the tires up and create yourself a better grip package to get a car, a racing car, through a series of turns. But in motorcycles, the term trail braking really does mean you're initiating the brakes as you're entering the turn, you're bleeding off speed, and then you're trailing off the brake as you're proceeding through the turn. So that when you get to sort of the apex of the turn, you have 
You're just on the power. You're not on the brakes anymore. You've transferred your traction package from the front of the bike to the back of the bike. And what I like to remind people is there's stopping traction and there's going traction. And, and those two things, they can exist right up until they touch each other. The front wheel is your stopping traction. The back wheel is your going traction. If your stopping traction is working really, really well, your back wheel will be in the air unless you're on a big, heavy touring bike or big, heavy cruiser bike. But a really well-effective use of stopping traction means that your contact pack in the patch in the back may have air underneath it. See, and that's good stopping. I guess, yeah. I mean, when you describe that, yeah. and I'm not formally trained, I've been riding for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not formally trained, but that's the way, I, that's the way I've always ridden. Right. I mean, I'm always on the power before, like, even before the APAC. I mean, yeah. like, when I pick when I pick the line, I'm on the power because I always felt that if I squish the back suspension, it's giving me the, the force, do, down force on my rear tire right. so that I'm getting more grip. And we're going to talk about that. And that's a well, big, then you're big, lightening your steering at that point. Well, and we're right, going to talk but about... I'm already in the, but I've already had the... Pick, uh, so, my line's already picked. So. He's, so, he's already committed to the turn. So he's already 50% of the way into the turn. Right. Right? And that's balancing your traction package. So... This, uh, the biggest thing about this is remembering that everybody has the fear of going into a corner too hot. I mean, this is just part of riding a motorcycle, is, is the fear of going into a corner too hot. Or getting into a corner and realizing it's your first time through the corner and the corner is tightening up on you more than you want it to tighten up. The first thing that we've said in the podcast before is force your brain to look further down the road. Literally, if you have to, tell your brain and your eyes, fuck you, asshole, look further down the road, and magically your bike will lean to it. Your cornering envelope is far steeper than you think it is. If you watch a road race, when someone actually leans in too mm-hmm. far and they lose the front end, yeah. that bike is almost laying on its side. Again. It really is. So most, yeah. per, most people's lean angle, where they start to get uncomfortable, yeah. they still have a margin Way more. So yeah. I always tell myself, if you're running out of corner, lean in deeper. That's because, absolutely. Because your mind automatically tells you, like, I'm as far as I can lean. Yep. But physics would tell you that you can lean another, whatever, X number of degrees. Unless you're slow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're slow, you'll fall right over. And you'll yeah. fall right on your That's fucking you ass you need to slow. maintain the speed. And we're going to talk about slow, that, you're... too. Do you understand... When we're when we're when we're going out and riding, thirty years of experience, we may have thirty years of bad habits. Yeah, so, true. what has happened with when I go and do my track days, when I go on the racetrack, and when I used to compete, one of the biggest things in the world that guys will tell you is that low sides are awesome, and that high sides suck ass. Yeah, I would never okay? want a high side. <laughs> All right, and I've high sided more than a couple of yeah. times. And the trick is, if you are looking into the future, if you are looking into where you want that motorcycle to be in three seconds, okay? See the ball, Danny. Exactly. Be the ball, ball, Danny. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're looking to where you want to be and you just say, I've overcooked it, this turn, this carousel, this decreasing radius turn is far more tight than I was ready for. And maybe I'm on a bike I don't know so well. And maybe I don't know this area well because I'm borrowing the bike. And I'm riding with people who live here. So they know these turns. And I don't. I'm the new guy here. And maybe it rained last night. You know? It's like landing a plane. When you when they teach you how to fly, yeah. 
They tell you don't look at the and your tendency is to look down the nose. Never look right down, down the, nose. the nose. Just look out when the you window. Land, you look at the end of the Absolutely. runway. Always. And then when you're coming mm-hmm. in, you yeah. look at the end of the runway and that's man, that'll give you a good landing a just up. because well, and it's kind of like docking a boat because a lot of people look at the dock. But what I look, I try to look like thirty yards past. You mean where the, the bar dock. is? Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> drive in that that far. Drive into where the boat where the boat runs into the bar, and you're perfect. Trail breaking doesn't yeah. work well with boats. With the boat. Well, but here's the thing that's important: by looking down the road, we always have to say "what if," right? The "what if" game is super important with riding a motorcycle. The "what's next," "what if" rule. I've heard it called "what if," and I've heard it called "what's next." It also and, reduces point fixation. Well, if you look down the road, it reduces your tendency to have point fixation because... I guarantee that you will target fix all the way to the point of impact. <laughs> well, yeah. I say that to everybody I train. You will target fixate all the way into the point of impact. I guarantee it. And the point is, we don't want to have that. But if you're looking down the road and you maintain that in the oh shit moment, if you re-pick a target that is further down the road, the worst case scenario is the most friendly low side you've ever been involved in, which is literally like falling off of your couch. Your your height, your ass, is about 14 inches off the ground. Your motorcycle has slowed down to being 20 or 30 miles per hour. And if you're on anything other than you know razor-sharp gravel, it's probably going to be a ripped pair of jeans. You know, you're going to walk it off, Tiger. And when you go scoop your motorcycle up and you realize that, you know, your, your brake lever looks like a banana and your mirror's in the oncoming lane, well, who gives a shit? Pick your bike up, make sure nobody's watching, go. and go home, yep. right? And you got a story for your friends. You know, and it happens every single ride. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if, you, if you blow it, we've all watched them yep. crash. If you blow it and you give up your target, you give up your target fixation, if you give that up, your brain is going to make you look at the curb on the other lane. The second you relinquish your target, your brain will look at the curb immediately in front of your bike. And that is what we call the point of impact that delivers the most beautiful high side you've ever seen. An epic high side that moves you and your motorcycle over the guardrail, down the hill, or the mountain, or wherever, the depending brambles. on... Yes, exactly. You get to meet Br'er Rabbit and all the other <laughs> fantasy creatures, right? On the way down. And if the high side is a guaranteed broken collarbone. I mean, guaranteed. I've never had a high side that didn't break a collarbone, which is a really terrible break to deal with. Plus, you're ragdolling, and so your your appendages are going everywhere. I would trade like 14 low sides for one high side. So always maintain that target focus, that target fixation of a good spot. The Uncle Phil's rule, Uncle Phil's three-second rule, is always look three seconds ahead. So always be looking three seconds ahead. At 100 miles an hour, that's very, very far away. And at 15 miles an hour, that's relatively close. But if you're always looking three seconds ahead, you're probably not going to have a high sight. So that's a big deal. We talk about the penalty for that. That concentration, the constant thought of what's next, absolutely, man. That's going to be the thing that you've got to be aware of the emergencies. Um, this is all about maintaining control, not relinquishing your control to any, you know, we don't want to give Mother Nature a loose road surface, leaves, gravel, other cars, we don't want to give them any authority. Physics is basic. Grip is good, slip is bad. Right? Mm-hmm. Enough said. That's it. Uh, less radius, less miles per hour. I was just thinking, uh, when you're getting on the front brakes with an anti-dive system, yeah. 
doesn't matter. You're still loading your tire. No, you're loading your tire, yeah. but but there's no lag. Mm-hmm. In the, I mean, wouldn't you think that your uh, your loading would be more instantaneous on an anti dive than it would be in a? Yeah, I don't really care. What I want to do is I want to get my bike into the heart of the suspension. That's the so main you want goal. To be in the middle of the suspension. I want to be in the so middle of the suspension because the first two inches of suspension travel is virtually useless, and the last inch is painful. Right? Right. So just like yeah, when you put it in your harsh. bus, last yeah. inch is too harsh, right? That's exactly it. So with this whole thing, remember that if you're going slow, your whole turn gets super tighter. So if you're bleeding off speed, right. your turn is not going to look like a letter C. It's going to look like a fish hook, right? Right. The overhead view of your turn is no longer a nice, beautiful, big, you know, semicircle. It's not a sweeper. It's, it's a, not. Right. So as you bleed off speed, because your motorcycle is pushing into the earth, You're using centripetal force to push the motorcycle outwards. You're squishing your suspension just based on your weight and the motorcycle's weight fighting against Mother Nature and the planet Earth. And as you slow down, that turn is getting tighter. So when you enter the turn at 50, you're on a big, beautiful 300-meter radius turn. When you are going 20, you're on a 50-meter radius turn. So you do have to remember, you may have to change your position in the course of the turn. If you're going to change your position in the course of the turn, if you're going to alter your body angle or you're going to alter your speed, I hope you're about to alter your speed because that's called getting out of the turn. Look at the turn, get into the turn, get out of the turn. If you're going to alter your speed, wouldn't it be great to be able to alter your speed having a really nice traction package on your tires? Having those tires squished out into big, beautiful, you know, monster pancake-sized traction patches? Well, the big thing that we've learned is it turns out the technique of braking really hard and then releasing the brakes prior to the turn bounces your suspension up on the front end, makes your contact back patch go from being a big old pancake to being a little tiny dime-sized contact patch, and you're at the top of the suspension where there's no fun whatsoever and it's completely unpredictable. Now you're going to throw the bike into a right or left-hand turn, which is going to do what? Immediately collapse the suspension again, but do it on a dime-sized contact patch? Fuck that noise. Mm. I do not want to be a part of that operation. And the adventure bikes would be even more dangerous because instead of having, you know, three inches or four inches of travel you have to worry about, now you're worrying about ten inches of travel. You have ten inches of travel, and only the middle three inches is any good whatsoever. Right. Right? Mm. So big contact patch, big grip. Remember, too, with motorcycles, a gradual is everything. Like, being smooth is fucking important. Anything done abruptly is going to be violent. And with a bike, a motorcycle changes a little tiny amount of finger energy into a whole lot of different shock position, contact patch, ride height. Your two fingers on your right hand can bleed off 60 miles an hour in about 90 feet, which is about 1.1 seconds. Imagine the inertia. I mean, imagine how much energy it takes to stop a 500-pound bike with a 200-pound rider yes. yeah. in 90 feet. Exactly. I mean, that's a, a lot And you of, can do it all with two fingers. Right. Right? Yeah. So with two fingers, you can create that big of an energy vacuum on planet Earth. That's fucking cool. Right? So we should be aware of that. And then remember, explosive change gets explosive results. So that's why I personally, as a human being, I'm frightened of my rear brake lever. So my fingers can affect a subtle change, like playing a musical instrument, a string instrument or anything, 
my two fingers can make a minute change of like one ounce of pressure real easily. I mean, we write, motherfucker. Like, we pick things with tweezers. We are amazing animals when it comes to using our fingertips. We are very sensitive animals. You don't when play it comes a saxophone with your feet. That's right. <laughs> and you don't pick your nose with your big toe, right? <laughs> and the thing is, like, I can pick my nose and not accidentally hit my brain, right? <laughs> but when I'm using my whole goddamn foot to put on the rear brake, I do not have pinpoint precision control. Yeah. I'll tell you, I mean, I, I like... I mean, I mostly use my front brake, but yeah. I like using my rear brake. I mean, sure. I like to balance it. Yeah. And these shoes, these gummy soles, yeah. are the absolute best for giving you feel through. I through mean, the, I know right. they're not motorcycle shoes. Right. I mean, really, they're squid shoes. No, oh, those are great looking shoes. Well, what do people say? You, you what? You use the front brake, but you stamp on the rear brake. You, you, you know, you're literally pressing. It's an anchor. It's an anchor, front, right? It's, it's an anchor. anchor. And your foot really doesn't give it. And remember, too, I watch new students do this, and I watch experienced riders do this. When your motorcycle starts slowing down, right, our body is not actually bolted to the motorcycle. So the motorcycle is slowing down. This lump of flesh is trying to continue on. What's happening is our foot on our peg tends to over-energize the brake. Okay. So as our body moves forward against this suddenly slowing down vehicle, our foot tends to rock in a downward position, yeah. and we are over-energizing or self-energizing the rear brake. Case for drum brakes in the rear. Well, all, and but it does happen on drum brakes too. Yeah. And you'll watch somebody who rides a bike that is a vintage bike that has a... Uh, perfectly purely horizontal mounted brake lever. If you can imagine, uh, the easiest one is picture around here is a Vespa or a Lambretta mm -hmm. where the pedal comes up through the floor. When the, when the bike slows down, your body weight shifts forward. Mm -hmm. Well, your foot is sitting on top of a brake pedal. Right. What happens to your foot? It goes down. So I've seen people go in a stop that's turned into a violent skid, a long, ugly, weird, uncontrollable oh, skid, <laughs> just and because their body weight was going onto their foot. Well, where else was their body weight going to go? Your dick can only hold so much, right? Yeah. Your feet are eventually going to push down. So that's how it works. So when your feet push down, you over-energize the rear brake. Um, on the racetrack, I never believed the guys who were like, I don't ever touch the rear brake. I disconnect the rear brake. I bleed my rear brake and put air bubbles in it so that I'm not using the rear brake because I know in a panic situation I can't trust myself. I'm going to hit the rear brake, and that's going to cause me to wash the bike out. I had a hard time doing that. I've never actually disabled the rear brake on my own machine, but I can tell you that I do save the rear brake now for certain traffic situations. I definitely ride with a more sporting bias, which means I hardly ever use the rear brake. And what has happened is my front tires and my rear tires now last the same amount of time, hmm. which is an anomaly in the motorcycle industry. But that was kind of my goal. Because you're wearing the front. Because I'm using as much braking as I am using launching. So my, my oh. deceleration, here's my, my weird zen-like thought about motorcycle riding. I used this much thrust to get me up this speed. I will use this much braking to get me down from this speed. If I started at my house and I end at my house and I'm no further from my house, I will have spent the same amount of energy getting up as I did getting down or going fast as I did slowing down, Right. So, therefore, I should use the same amount thrusting traction and the same amount of braking traction. Hmm. Strange as it might seem, right? 
Or regen. Again, regen, right? I've made electricity. It's like a rear brake. Well, it is a rear brake. It's too bad it wasn't a front brake. So, <laughs> what I, the real thing that we talk about is keeping that contact patch. And, and really, contact patch is never a bad thing. It just occurred to me that we were talking about the zero last yeah. week. And in sport mode, there's almost no regen. Right. And right. maybe that's why. Because you would have uh, a, the back. a back buy. You'd I'm going to tell bias. you right now, the reason I don't want regen in sport mode is because you are now taking away some of my ability to trail brake. You are now well, that's and, and you actively know, that giving finally, me rear brake energy without me asking for it. And I never right. understood why yeah. that was. And right. dang, yeah. you know, it just, Oh, I don't it, want to. Just like the DCT transmission on the NCX like going into a turn and I'm like halfway through the turn and the, and the bike is like I think you should be in a lower gear. Well, fuck you! I don't want to be in a lower gear, right? They need to put like a, a lean sensor on there or yeah. something. That oh yeah. Once again, here we are. Um, I'm very careful about when I describe trail braking to somebody. The whole idea is that you leave brake pressure on, and there's a great term that Cycle World magazine used years ago. It's called BIT, brake light in the turns. And what has happened is if you ever go out and ride with a bunch of people you've never ridden with before, and they're riding, say, in Sturgis, which means by law they're riding a giant V-twin. It's usually made in America. And uh, despite all the right, despite yeah. all the gremlin bells and shit. Except the wheels are made in China. Eh, the bigger parts are. But anyway, what you'll find with those guys is there's some sort of sense of pride of never, ever, ever using their brakes in a turn. Yeah. And so I'm riding with 20 people. And these 20, 30 people are all riding at the same time. And what are you doing? They're all going into a turn. I don't see one brake light. Like, not one. But when I ride with sport bike people and I ride on a track day, you'll see 18 people going to turn one and you'll see 18 brake lights. Right? Because every single person who's been on a racetrack knows about BIT, brake light in the turn, or trail braking as it's called. Like, the idea is, I'm not sending, God forbid I should tip my hand and let you know that I'm slowing down. You know, that's a secret. I'm keeping that. You're not allowed to know that I'm slowing down. I don't want you to get past me in the turn, motherfucker. Right? Uh, I'm gonna not going to show a brake light because I'm carrying my power all the way into the turn. Well, except for, as we said, if you aren't carrying your... You know, if you're carrying your speed into the turn all the way into the turn, you're going to find the point of impact. Absolutely. You're going to bleed off your speed, and it's okay to brake and turn at the same time within reason. Within reason carries a lot of weight around here. So... That's a big thing. Uh, the con a, a fat contact patch is going to get you through every turn faster. But here's what's more important about that is as you get deeper into a turn, the world is revealed to you. You may see on this zero ride that I took in San Diego, we came around a turn. I set myself into always, I'm always the guy who's right on the inside of the turn. My shoulder is on the mountain. I don't care where we are, I'm tight. There was a fucking snowball two and a half feet, three feet, the bottom of Frosty, right? That rolled down the fucking hill, and it was in my lane. It was in my line. Because I was set up where I set myself up in the turn, because I was trail braking, you know, 45 miles per hour on a 35-mile-an-hour turn, I was able, super easy with no stress, to release a little bit of brake energy, which did what? My speed went up a little bit. 
right? The radius. And what did I do is I increased the radius of my turn. So without putting any pressure on the handlebars, without changing even my suspension height on the motorcycle, I shifted my position in the lane instantly, no delay. So it wasn't the, the delay effect of, I'm going to put more pressure on my left handlebar. I'm going to put more pressure on my left handlebar. I'm going to put more left pressure on my left foot. That will stand the bike up, and I will avoid the obstruction. This was simply a matter of, I'm going to let my two fingers on my right hand out, one blonde one. And if I let it out one blonde one, I'm going to go four feet wider in the lane, and I went right around that snowball. It didn't affect anybody around me violently because I had only changed my course the two or three feet that that snowball needed. You didn't zig around it. No, you, I you, glided, you glided around, around it. Yeah. I glided around you, it. It wasn't violent. Swing outward a little bit. And everyone else was like, holy shit, we came around that corner. Did you see that fucking snowball sitting there? And I went, yep, I did. And I, what did I do? I went around it, right? I didn't leave a big skid mark before it. I just gently went around it. Because my suspension was already loaded, because I was already on the brake, it gave me a choice to make. If I would have been doing it the old school way, where I wasn't on the brake, I was coasting the bike through the turns, right? And then Frosty the Snowball comes up. Well, if I hit the brakes at that point, what happens? My geometry changes, because as soon as I hit the brakes, when I see Frosty Snowball, I hit the brakes, my motorcycle gets lower. The bike dies, which makes it harder to turn. Which gives me a resistance to energy on my front wheel, and it almost it might also overcome your traction ability. Exactly. Point. At that point, I could eat up all of my suspension, or worse yet, I could actually skid the front wheel because my contact patch is too small to begin with. So in this case, I had a big, healthy contact patch on a a little bit of a little gravelly, dirty road with some wet spots. It was cold enough; there was snow, and you know, the snowball was there, but there was still enough of a traction patch contact patch that I was able to release a little bit of brake pressure and sink right around Frosty. No big deal. I know that other people who hit came... Hit snowball. Well, I know that other people who were behind me <clears throat> shit themselves. You know? So, because everybody was talking about it when they got done. They were like, oh my god, I came around the turn and didn't know... But for me, it was a non-issue or a non-event because I've been working this system for years. And that's a real-world example. Also, it's shit is in the road sometimes. Or there's a pothole. Or there's the guy in front of you that already crashed, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there's that thing. What the, the example I give is real simple. Having the contact patch, already being on the brakes, already having the suspension in its meat and potatoes zone, it's the difference between literally being on a boat where you think there's life jackets on the boat or already wearing your life jacket and having it buttoned up. Because once shit goes to hell, the guy who's already got the life jacket on and it's buttoned up He's a survivor. The guy who's looking around the boat trying to find the life jacket. He's playing in the band. He's in the band, yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. Get back on your tuba. Yeah. Keep playing. Right? Near thy God to thee, right? Or near my God to thee. Uh, a lot of religious references this, this episode. Uh, so corner exits. This is where it gets kind of fun, is that when you're getting the fuck out of the corner, it's nice to have traction too, and that's just all about... The fact that you've already got your suspension into its golden zone, like that middle perfect load zone, you do not want to give that up. And that's where the difference between somebody who's getting into trail braking and somebody who's really fucking good at it shows up, is when you do release halfway through that turn or less than halfway through the turn, 
you've trailed out. Like, you don't have any trail left to give, motherfucker. You are off the brakes. But the suspension is still squished because you have all that energy going into that turn. The, the world is trying to push you into the ground in that turn because you're leaned over. So your suspension is now preloaded. You now have permission to completely release the front brake because your contact patches are even, the tires are squished. Even if your bike had no suspension, your tires are still, as Chris Smith likes to say, what are your tires? Yeah. Cylinders of air. <laughs> so your cylinders of air are, quit, are squished, and you're getting a contact patch as a result of that, even if you didn't have suspension. Well, this is what's cool, is you can trade your brake for your throttle. You can actually make an exchange. And if you're good and you're gentle, you can trade the brake for the throttle by just giving it the throttle, and the two-finger technique pays off now. If you're not riding two fingers, you should try it. Because it gives you the ability to twist your throttle without relinquishing control of your brake. Mm. And I have tried the, the, the heel-toe method, but with the motorcycle, where you're kind of like, you're still giving it front brake a little tiny bit, and then you feed some throttle in so it's not abrupt. So you're kind of like giving your thumb, your thumb <laughs> is working that throttle just a tiny bit, just to bring it up off the basement. And it's essentially rev matching, but you're never out of the gear. And then when you feel that power start to come on, then you kind of go, okay, last 1% of braking is being released now. I'm totally releasing you, front brake, from any energy, and I'm putting all that contact patch into the back wheel. And that transfer to the weight on the back is fantastic because you're going to turn two medium-sized traction patches into a bigger one in the back, which is what you need now you're in thrust mode. So when you go into thrust mode, it's nice to have a little more traction so you don't accidentally overcook the back tire as you're giving gas. If you're only riding 13 horsepower, it's going to be hard to do that. But if you're riding 124 horsepower, it's going to be pretty easy to spin that back tire out. So know what you're riding. Uh, this game about BIT, um, it's, it's just about putting enough pressure to basically touch the brake pads to the rotors. It's enough pressure to just get yourself set. You've preloaded the yeah. brake system at exactly. that point. Exactly, right. You're Taking not, all the slop mm, out of yeah. the, uh, the calipers, the pads. And that's right, and that's a good term is slop. And dialing out the slop is... The play, the Right, slop. it's a real good idea. It's like so, Well, it is, and... When you need it, it's right there. Yeah. You don't have to wait for it to apply, and it won't be violent because you're already into it. Right. So if you're at 1% or 2%, well, first of all, that's not going to lose you the race because you're on the fucking street, pal. You know, yeah. you're, It's better to be set up. It's better to have your suspension you've, set up. You've bedded the pads against the rotor. Exactly. They're, they're flat. Yeah. They're full contact. We've seen it. I've seen it a lot on these rides that we go on where you see a ton of people out there at the same time. There's a minor thing, a car backing out of a driveway, whatever. And what do you see is you see 30 people all go from like, hey, it's a nice day, all dressed up, to like, <clears throat> and you hear that squeal. And you're like, oh, well, that was just 50 assholes slamming shut. And that's all it is because they're, they're over-energizing their, their speed reduction systems. And that violence or that explosive energy change is what turns your tire into grease. And so you're not having a controlled stop. You're now sliding. So you don't want to have the explosive effect of turning rubber into grease. Um, it's, it's terrifying. 
I can think of every time I've lost it in a corner, and I can go back and play the highlight reel in my head, and I can almost in every single one of them tell you where I fucked up. And usually it was being too sudden or too violent. Like, the change that I made on the situation was too much. And sometimes it was just I came in just fucking shit hot, and I got I got stupid and I panicked and I looked at the point of impact. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, like, I, I, I wrote my own check on that stupid one, you know. I picked where I was going to crash. I picked what pole I was going to hit. And you look and you're like, a week later you drive the same road, you're like, I could have fucking made it out of that. I've done turns like that all the time. So that's a big deal. Remember that your brakes do have an effect on your steering geometry. And that is a part that everybody overlooks, is when your motorcycle goes from being a chopper to being a street fighter, your turn-in is different. Your geometry actually changes. Your rake is the same. Your trail changes. And bikes that have a different trail turn, or shorter trail, turn tighter than a bike that has an extended trail. So if you could imagine somebody came up to your motorcycle and said, I'm going to make your forks four inches longer, that would adversely affect the performance of your cornering. And if somebody came up and said, I'm going to drop your motorcycle two inches in the triples, that would also affect your turn in. The same exact thing happens when you're on the road and you're going into a turn and you raise or lower your headlight headlight by application of brakes, right? You are changing the geometry of the bike. And that's the thing is when your geometry, when their headlight is lower and your shocks are more compressed, you'll find that the bike turns in much easier when that front end is lower. So you're and reducing your trail? Yeah, reducing your brakes. trail. Right. So when you're on the brakes... When you're on the brakes, you're changing the position of the front tire relative to your handlebars. Okay, so as yeah. that, a, a shorter trail gives you it's going to turn tighter, and a longer yeah. trail gives you slower steering. Okay, right. And if you ride a Vespa, you know the Vespas are always sitting here looking at us. A Vespa's got an insanely steep steering head angle. It's got an incredi- insanely steep rake, but also due to that um, trailing link suspension that's on there, it has an astronomical amount of trail. You know, because the axle is actually below the rotational point of the fork. So Vespas turn in quite suddenly. You know, to people that have never ridden a Vespa before, they're like, Jesus Christ, this thing is squirrely. Well, yes, it wants to change direction fast. It's a water bug. And the small wheels. And the small wheels, too. Exactly. So that's a big, big thing. Uh, it does go up exponentially. It goes up evenly with your speed. So as your speed goes up, your braking energy goes up as well. That's just That goes hand in hand. Uh, you will eventually get the hang of it. It won't be a big deal. Downshifting into a turn is something that I've been working on for years, and I'm still not great at it. But matching revs, so rev matching going into a turn is a fucking art form. And you're getting real good at it with one motorcycle, and you drive oh, yeah, a different bike, and it totally thing. bites you in the yeah, ass. Yeah. So slipper clutches have been invented to make that less deadly so that you can essentially drop the clutch going into a turn on the interceptor, you know, the a modern interceptor. You're going into a turn, and you've got all this energy, you know, this contact patches. I've, I've done a good job. I've got myself set up. I've got good weight on my front tire, and I know that I need to be in second gear to get out of this turn. I know that going through this turn at fifth gear is not an option. Even though I got into the turn at 75 miles an hour, I'm going to leave the turn at 30. 
and I don't want to be in fifth gear at 30 miles an hour when I leave this turn. So I'm going to downshift to second or third gear. Well, when I let the clutch out, if I'm not riding a bike with a slipper clutch, when I let the clutch out, my RPMs are going to be at 1,600 RPM or 1,200 RPM, and that's going to translate to my back wheel not going 70 anymore. My back wheel is going to be going 35. That's going to fucking skid. It's just it. So you may have to inflate your throttle. You may have to bump your revs a little bit. And it's funny with modern motorcycles how quickly they rev up. So it takes nothing. Again, two fingers on the brake. Rock your wrist a little bit. You'll get your RPMs up to 3,500 RPM. And then feed the clutch in gently. Because at 3,500 yeah. RPM, they rev match beautifully. It's not 6,000 RPM. It's just 3,500. It's very moderate. It's very mellow. And when you let the clutch out at 3,500 RPM, going into the turn so you can be in the right gear, you'll find that your front brake is doing a good job building its traction package, package as you're bleeding off speed. It turns out if you can multitask in your mind and match those revs on the back tire, what you're going to end up with is this beautiful turn. And it is not easy to do. And if we're going to say that, if we're going to say that trail braking is an advanced skill, I'm going to say that rev matching going into a turn is an advanced, advanced skill. That, that was the beauty of the mana. Yeah, right? Automatic yeah. transmission? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking the more you're, you're talking about trail braking, it's mm -hmm. like you have to treat your bike like a musical instrument. Right. Not like, uh, like it's just something you're getting from place to place on. You, you have to play the bike. You do. And so, right. like, uh, it's, you're multitasking. Yeah. When you're playing an instrument, you're multitasking. And you have, that's the way you have to treat it. You have to, I mean... This quote came out great. It was like, we are the fork rebound engineers. And we are the contact pack, en pack engineers. Which is like you're saying. We're the musician. We're the person that's playing this, this instrument. And the middle is where you want to be. And either extreme, top or bottom, no load or too much load, is where shit gets painful. And so something that's totally unloaded has no grip. Something that's overloaded is now turned into grease. So when it's overloaded, it's grease. When it's underloaded, it's air. And if it's overloaded, you might as well not have any suspension. You're right. Because you've got to compact it. And your tire's the only done. suspension yeah. at that point. When you've bottomed something out, and we've all been there, I bottomed out a Thunderbird Sport in Chicago on a pothole. I was braking in a group ride. So I was braking in a group ride. The group accordioned up. I had a passenger on the back. We were going a decent speed, but the group just said, we're stopping. So I gave it the full fucking use of the front brakes. And I did. And I bottomed the suspension out as the exact same nanosecond we hit a pothole. So there's a pothole right as we were in our 10-foot beautiful maximum compression. Spying, it's driven right into your head. Oh, my hands <laughs> yeah. hurt for a week. But more importantly, it stoved my front forks. So after the pothole, my, front, my headlight never came back up again. I was riding a rigid. Wow. I had literally pushed those dampers, those little, uh, what do they call it, TP-shaped <coughs> bolts at the bottom of the fork legs. I had seated them, them into in. the forks themselves, into the tubes themselves. So my stanchions and my sliders had become one, and they were fused. 
and you don't realize it. So you, you, you stop and everything, you stop, no, you don't hit anybody and nobody hits you, you got away with it. Yay. But then you ride, and if you ride a rigid for like eight feet on Chicago roads, you know there's something horribly wrong, right? And you're like, God, this, what the fuck happened? Did somebody replace my front tire with wood? No, it's just bottomed out. So we pulled off. Can't put the side stand down because the bike is literally three inches, four inches shorter in the front than it should be. So the girl who's on the back is holding the bike upright with her feet. I go around the front of the bike and I look at it. And I'm like, when did I get like the Thunderbird Sport Super Low? When did I get the Ultra Low package? And it looks like, you know, my bike is all excited because the ass is up in the air. It's presenting. And so I just grabbed the front trickle. I grabbed the front triples, put my foot on the tire, and pulled real hard. And it went, and it released and. I took a deep breath and it recharged the shocks. And of course, what had happened was, well, I bought the bike used in Chicago the day of the rally. Like, you know, I flew in, bought the bike, et cetera, that kind of thing. And the previous owner didn't do good shock maintenance on it. And it didn't have enough oil in the forks for that particular violent of a scenario. So well, also you had someone behind you, and that's yeah. an extra weight right. you're, when you're dipping. It to wasn't the, just the a 210 pound well, yeah, semi shape. Think of the physics there. I mean, yeah, yeah you're it's talking like, about there's a lot of energy. Pound girl on the back. I don't know if she was 210 pounds. We don't talk about that. She was in the back, and that's good enough for me. <laughs> Two boobs in the front, in my back. All right. All right, so we move on. Technique is simple. It's, it's just what we talked about. Reduce the throttle a little bit. Squeeze on a little front brake. I like to call it locking in my speed setting. So I like to say is I look at my turn, and I go, all right, I'm prepared to go into this turn at this speed. And I use my front brake to be like my lock. My front brake in my brain is a lock, a speed lock. So that locks the speed setting in. Now, I'm at this point, I do address in the notes that you can, in fact, use the rear brake to help you with this if you're on a monster cruiser bike. Um, I have used it with varying different degrees of success. I still don't feel comfortable with it, but it's a technique. I don't ever want to suddenly change the rear speed, the rear wheel speed. Anyway, uh, it's the time you want your, like I said, I don't, this is not the time you want your rear end to start stepping out if your heavy foot applies too much pressure. I leave my front brake on past the tip-in point, the point of commitment. Um, I keep my front tire loaded. I keep my steering geometry numbers slightly tighter than it would be on the normal street. So I want my front end, I want my headlight to be an inch or two lower than it would normally be in the world. Um, I find the bike just turns in easy. And it's funny because I call it power steering. So normal steering, you know, you look left, go left, look right, go left, push left, go right, whatever. To me, when I've got my front suspension loaded up about three inches, and I've got that you know five or six percent of brake energy going on, the bike steers easier. The bike becomes like electric steering. It, it literally it becomes telepathic. Yeah, it's funny because you're you have a bigger contact patch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you think, you'll think it would be, be uh, yeah. the opposite, right? Yeah, like somebody replaced your 120 front tire with a 180. It would turn slower, <laughs> right? You put some right. big. Firestone big police tire on the front, it would turn slower. But this is big contact patch, energy going forward. All of a sudden, it's like I have superhuman steering. So I can change directions. Really, I can make micro adjustments really easy. It's because there's so much kinetic energy that it overcomes the fact that the tire's bigger? It's because you have more contact patch, but you also have done all the things about forcing the energy package into the front of your motorcycle so that a small, a micro adjustment gives you a nice uh, reward, is the best way I can think about it. Um, 
trail braking. I like the I like it when one guy I read called it brake assisted steering, and I was like, that's pretty fucking clever. Calling it brake assisted steering is better than calling it trail braking because trail braking is confusing. It implies the rear brake and it implies dirt bike riding. So brake assisted steering is a kick ass term. I like that. Um, I, I the idea is keep your slowing and steering components online and active. That's all kick ass. Uh, that's all cool. Here's the things that you're gonna get is when people say like I'm in the corner of the tur- I'm in the middle of the turn and I, I tap the front brake to make an adjustment and my bike just stands up. You're doing it way too hard. Like if you are cornering and you make a brake change and you feel like your bike is standing up, you're coming at it way too hard. Back off. This is a very fine motor skill. If you crush the brakes that hard that the bike stands itself up. You're going to high side at some point. There. That's right. You're getting way too close to a high side. So back out of it. Come at it a lot softer. Um, that's a big, big thing. And then the other one is if you're skidding. Uh, and I have done it. And I've done it out here on, quote, black ice. Uh, why has it got to be black, man? The uh, It's always... <laughs> That it could point be red if it's out west and they use like this is true too you know yeah that red yeah, red gravel yeah, road. red gravel roads yeah. uh, if you're skidding I have had this happen and the funny thing is I've never had the front end wash out on me when I was trail braking I've always had the front end wash out on me when I was going to through what I thought was a a nice generous curve and then I realized that the the engineers like put a mountain there you know. Like, my nice, generous turn turned into, oh, shit, this is tightening up on me. And I was like, oh. Why would anybody ever design a a reduced radius, a reducing radius curve? And not bank the road accordingly. Right. Right. And that's where I've had problems is where I've been in a turn, and the turn has got a reduced or a decreasing radius turn, but the banking hasn't changed. When you go to New York, it's like this. It's a nice swoop. Yeah. Nice swoop, nice swoop. Again, it's... And it's a fish hook. It's a whole... Yeah, it is. It's a fish hook, man. uh, It's the dreaded fish hook. And the dreaded fish hook... You know, there's one in Santa Cruz I've ridden on a bunch of times, and it catches, it kills all kinds of people. We've got one here in Cleveland. We've affectionately called it Dead Man's Curve. Mm-hmm. Like, we, people in different cities, they all know where their particular fish hook is. And it's that turn that's like, I got this. Oh, shit. What the shit? I got <laughs> you know? it. I got it. I got, gonna, it. I, don't got <laughs> it. I got it. I don't got it. I don't got it. I don't got it. And it's usually, if you ever want to know if your turn is a fish hook, just look for like a thousand hubcaps. So if you see like a thousand hubcaps and hood ornaments and like a lot of headlight glass, you've found your fish hook. Like you've found that road. Um, it's a big, big deal. Being smooth will elum- eliminate a lot of skidding, uh, and that's the thing. And tires is a big thing. You know, we're not going to get crazy into tires, but I've got tires. There's these Kendas over here on my Scrambler. That if you think you're a good rider, ride those Kendas one time, and you'll realize that you're not a good rider. You think you're smooth. Ride those Kendas. Those fucking things slip and and just they just give up the ghost. Chiseled out of stone. Again, right. The only ever tire made of stones. Uh, <laughs> terrible. But have you ever been riding a motorcycle and had the tire warn you that it was about to let go? Hmm. Have you ever had a tire give you a little like, hey, hey guy, hey, that was just a hint of things oh. to come. Because I have. And I've had tires when I've been leaned over in a turn where I had the not so fresh feelings. You know? So you're just leaned over in the corner and you're like, oh man, I got this. This is great. This is beautiful. 
This is perfect. And then the tire goes, huh? And you mm-hmm. move in the lane about three inches. Tire snakes. Well, snakes is the worst, but like this is just a normal oh, road. A normal road. Where the yeah. tire. Yeah, just... And it turns out, I never knew this before, but tire designers and tire engineers will basically work really hard to give a tire that kind of lets you know before it goes. Hmm. And that's quite something. And I've had tires that have done it. Um, I used to run these Angels almost exclusively because I was convinced that the tire designers, when they built the Angels, they programmed that tire somehow that before it washed out, it gave you a little warning. It just gave you a little bit of like... Hey, buddy. A Hummer. Just, just. How, how's that happen mechanic? How is that happening mechanically? What I think it is is I think you're developing enough heat, and you're greasing the tire enough, so you're leaned over enough, you're committed enough to the corner, you're you're at the edge of the traction package. It's getting hot enough that it's getting soft enough. And it's getting hot enough that it's getting soft enough that the part you're on at the moment is greasy, but the other side of the tire, 180 degrees from where you are at the moment has cooled down a little bit. And so you get this kind of like transitional traction thing. Mm. And so it's like you start to slip, but as you're slipping, all of a sudden it, it hooks up. And it grips and it's a warning. And your butthole slams shut and everything gets weird. Tunnel vision sets in. And you just gently back away from everything. And I've only had it happen a couple of times, but I don't know why, but I became like hooked on those those angels and then the Rosa Corsas now, um, I'm getting that kind of... I've had a couple of tires from uh, Pirelli that they're getting into their multi... Uh, multi-density Multi-density rubbers. tires. They're multi-composite yeah. tires. Mm-hmm. So that when I'm going, transferring between the medium surface and the super sticky surface on the edges, sometimes I'll get a little, huh? You know, a little, hey, but, hey guy. Mm-hmm. And that is just transferring from a medium grip to a softer grip on the edge. And it might be that your point of contact gets a little smaller and you're also on the different part of the of the shape of the tire. You're not yeah. on the on the flat surface. You're kind of you're the, literally out to the corner, edges. right? Yeah. You're kind of the shape is not. And you'll notice a good racing tire will extend yeah. beyond the edge of the rim of the, the yeah. wheel itself. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's giving you that little extra bit. I mean, you're paying for 120 millimeters and you're getting a little bonus on the sides. <laughs> and so that's been a big, I mean, really... Uh, and I don't do enough track days. I wish I could get out and do more of them to experiment and play with them the a tires. little bit more and get more confidence behind the tires. But the trail braking, the reason I want to talk about it is because I have been doing it on the street as religion. And the more that I'm doing it, the better I feel, the more comfortable I feel with it, and the less vagary I felt towards cornering. So I mean, there's a stall, like a the like stall is God. A stall warning would be like it's you know, yeah. whistle starts coming up yep. on you and yep. you know you're coming into a stall and yep. it's two had tires didn't have yeah but I mean there would be no way to do it you'd have to do it with maybe with a anti-lock brake well maybe just going could, through our only version of a curvy road which is the metro parks which you know we're all going through that at 30 miles per hour never faster <laughs> and uh, what what I've learned is when I'm going to go into that turn now when I've compared my turns where I'll get my, go and set myself up and run the same turn seven or eight times that when I run the turn using trail braking tra- I feel very confident in the turn I, I can set myself up to the to the 
the dime. You know, I could pick a dime up off the pavement. My tire's going to be at the same spot every single time because I can pick where I want that road to be, where I can pick that line to be. But my God, man, when I just go at it loose, when I like come at the turn the old school way, where I'm like, okay, go into the turn, brake, okay, let off the brakes, now just ride through the turn. All of a sudden, like you said, stalling is a big problem. I get halfway through the turn and I'm like, oh, what the fuck? Well, I guess, okay, I guess I better, I guess this is my exit line. I guess this is where I stab the gas and get out of this thing because I, apparently I'm done turning. So it's less predictable. Right. So I like trail braking because I get to choose how we do it. And that's big. Yeah. So so what about the, uh, like you were talking about the zero on the demo that you have. Um, but, but if you're not in the speed mode or the whatever the, the name of that option is, and you have that's auto perfect. regen, mm-hmm. so you have braking yeah. on the back. Yeah, you do. And you're controlling the front. Mm-hmm. Obviously that changes a little bit the game yeah. of, of how you do the... It does. The trail it absolutely right? does. And any motorcycle or even cars that are defaulting to a regen mm. or bikes that have a ton of engine braking, when you ride a bike that has a ton of engine braking and you come out of the clutch on a big V-twin, you know it feels like you're dropping an anchor in the road. It feels like that back tire is just like well, that's grabbing the That's the reason why you want to match RPM. And that's why matching the RPMs. Uh, and okay. if you're matching RPMs on a zero, you're not regening. So if you're matching RPMs on a zero, which means you're giving it like one or two degrees of throttle, you're not regening. It's like freewheeling. And you're calling, I know when you do it, you call it freewheeling, and that's that bonus coasting you get. So like when people that don't, he rides a zero a lot. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of figured out this hypermiling technique of, I want to make electricity, I can regen like a motherfucker and make electricity using it like an invisible brake. But he's also figured out the perfect, like, little throttle position where the bike goes into, like, coasting mode. Yeah, it doesn't draw any, and it doesn't regen. Right, it doesn't so, regen, okay. so it doesn't slow you down, but it's also not pulling any power out of the battery. Yeah, it just right. shows nothing on the... It's it just shows nothing coasting. on the, like, yeah. it's got the power, like, how much torque it'll regen yep. you have. But when you're in that, like, just a click off, uh, just a <laughs> hair yeah. on the throttle... It'll have nothing, so you can... You can... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, I really do feel like the zero thing does change a lot. There's a lot of things that are different about that. There's a lot of things that are different about riding a DCT transmission. This is a weird thing that our ancestors really didn't, didn't need to deal with much. And there's a lot of Because it was like there, yeah. every motorcycle had a clutch and it had <clears throat> gears, and that's how you fucking rode it, yeah. right? So now, what kind of bike you ride really changes how you how you ride it. Um, it is a it's a big change. So if you're doing dark side, trail braking probably isn't a good dark idea. Dark side. For you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I took this wheel off the back of my Buick and put it on the back of my Goldwing, so now I can get a fifty thousand mile tire life. <laughs> How's that working out for you? It's I great, can, man. I got fifty thousand miles on my Goldwing tire. I can go. How straight. do you corner? I corner great. I don't. Like, I don't. How just do you corner great? <laughs> but every guy, every guy I know that's done a dark side has told me this bike corners as good or better than it did on motorcycle tires. And I look at him and I'm riding behind him and I'm like, no, a car bigger tire. sidewalls. Exactly right. Right. I got Mickey Thompson's on there, so a big soft sidewall. So the bike just the tire stays on the road, 
the bike shifts on its axis. You, you get know? The, the crinkle effect. The crinkle effect. The wrinkle. And I got and what do you got them? Uh, you got them down to about eight psi, so you can really run. So but you drag it like two degrees. So it's, oh my god! That, that was that was the one thing that I when I, I mean if you watch the the Kevin Nolan the Batman with the mm-hmm. the, the bike out of oh, the, shit, the tires. Yeah, I was like, that doesn't look right at Every all. Every time I watch that bike, <laughs> yeah, you watch Batman, him. modern Batman, that tumbler with those ridiculous, right. giant aggro tires. tires on yeah. it. You're like, wait a second. He has very little pounds per square inch on yeah. that tire. Like, So if that tire is made out of pencil erasers, then he might have the grip he needs to make it do everything that it's doing. But otherwise, it's been my experience that if you have less pounds per square inch, you are sacrificing a certain amount of your traction package, and that you're more prone to slipping and sliding. You know, ask anyone who's ever ridden uh, a quad that has big wide knobbies on it on the street. You know, it's real easy to get those things to spin around in a circle because they're not hooking up. They were with uh, high silicon tires. Yeah, high silicon. That. They slip on the if you do under if they you run them underinflated mm-hmm. then you run the risk of rotating the tire on the rim. That's interesting because there's an inherent slipperiness to the silica. Yeah, nope. and so, so that you don't have the pressure of the tire pushing against the rim to, to maintain a good in. bead. Yeah, so, so I didn't know that. So the tire can rotate uh-huh. if you run a bead lock. Right, you could actually rotate the tire can actually the rim could slip spin inside the tire. Wow, mm-hmm. that's. Actually frightening. Yeah. It is. Yeah. John's bike, by the way, I noticed in the photographs that John's bike, the rear tire was completely flat and had a big dent in the rim. So he didn't get that from the bike going up in the air and coming down on the ground. He got that from the car behind him hitting him. So the car hit him hard enough to deflate his rear tire and dent his rear rim. So that gives you an idea of the force of the impact on his motorcycle. Um, All of his stuff, like all all the Bagger Edition accessories were just destroyed. Like, everything... Yeah! It's like what... It, uh, we used to have these things, these these T-slot racer cars. You'd pull the T-slot, and you'd run them against... They'd hit the wall, and they'd just, like, intentionally break into a thousand pieces. SSTs. SSTs, man. And, like, that's what his bike looked Some like. It looked fluid and light them on fire. It looked like somebody had said, we've constructed this vehicle just so it will explode into the maximum number of pieces. <laughs> and the tow truck driver was nice enough to have all the pieces... Like in a one pile, like a gut pile around the uh, Moto Guzzi for you know for John's bike. So yeah, and he's got the cool. And was anybody arrested on this? And I don't know. You know what? I sure hope so. And I sure hope that somebody loses their fucking license for like ten years. Well, and I do hope dog shit. Here's your bus pass. Right, and (laughs) not just that, but look, I can say that I, after my motorcycle crash, where I was to blame. You know, this happened in competition. This happened off-road. This happened on a racetrack. So with a tib-fib and a a shoulder injury and a couple of broken ribs, my leg has never been the same after that. I can absolutely tell you that my life has been altered dramatically as a result of what happened to me 19 years ago, 18 years ago. This is going to affect John for the rest of his life. There's there's no getting around it. The weather's going to affect him. He's not a 22-year-old triathlete, right? I was 30 years old and couldn't... I thought he did run a 3-2-60, though. (laughs) (laughs) When I wrecked and I hurt, when I blew my leg up, I was, you know, I could run 12 miles. And 
I never got back to anything close to that. So, in his condition, you know, is this permanent? Is this a lifetime disability? Is what I'm saying. Well, it could it's going to be. be pain. It's going to be a lifetime of pain. It I mean, absolutely will be pain and, and so arthritis. Let's and just hope that he finds a lawyer with a K and R. Hurt in a car. Call K and R. Call K and R. Let's hope he can find an attorney with a high degree of tenacity and understanding for what he's going to be going through, and that the person, the assailant's insurance, is healthy enough that it can compensate John for the obvious change in his life because it fucking sucks, man. And nobody wants to be in that position. Uh, especially when you're just trying to drive to work. I mean, it's not like he was out fucking around. Yeah. You know, it's not like he was trying mm-hmm. to set Florida on fire. He was trying to go to work. It happened at like, oh, dark 30, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, way before I wake up. <laughs> That's why I like going to work at 3 or 4 because... That's what you guys, you two are sitting over here going, I know. Hey, what time do you wake up? Oscar's like 4.30 and Steve's like, amateur. I'm in the middle of the day <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, but what sucks is... Monday for my lunch to show up because now Monday it's getting up at two o'clock in the morning. No, 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 two o'clock and in the morning are never in the same sentence. Yeah, well, it will be on Monday for me. No, (laughs) two o'clock and in the morning are mutually exclusive. Fuck that. Two o'clock that is like, oh, you mean when the bars close? I do the same thing now. I wake up, I go to my car. Yeah, I have I brew a pot of coffee in the morning, okay. So I already had, I take half the pot of coffee, I pour it in my, I have a Yeti, I pour, I pour it in there and I leave it in my car. What? And when I sit down on the car, I grab that, I put it in my left hand and I start drinking it and I start the car and I drink like half that cup of coffee while I'm sitting in the car, like I let it warm up like 15 seconds and I take right. it off. Yeah. And by the time I get to the freeway, then I know where I am. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Again, proving humans shouldn't be awake at that hour. Yeah. Yeah. No, it kind of sucks, but the best part of it is... <laughs> oh, my God. You're covering all your son's uh, plants. That, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, nobody's at work. So you could be at work alone, oh, and that is, that is well worth waking up. Yes. That's what early I to have, <laughs> What do you do at To have nobody home. there. Yeah. 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 No, and then I stay, I work a 12-hour day, so by the time everybody leaves, I get to stay three hours without anybody else. Anybody <laughs> else want to hear a really interesting email from one of our podcast listeners? Yes, Ooh. please, yeah. Uncle Phil. All right. So this comes from Peter Nielsen, and he's in Arlington, Washington. Nice. Okay. So he's Pacific Northwest type person. Pacific. Yep. Now be Pacific about that. All right. All right. So he's out there fighting them Pacific Northwest kaiju. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of your podcast and felt the need to write about episode 227, Uh-oh. where we discussed fuel injection. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have not even quite finished listening to the whole thing yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're not done recording it. <laughs> but at one point, you mentioned that aircraft used to use mechanical fuel injection. Mm-hmm. I feel oh boy something coming on. I feel ab- I'm about to be corrected. <laughs> I feel a draft. <laughs> well, in my early days with Boeing, well, <laughs> they still do, and we make it. Ooh. Oh, nice. I like that. It is similar in technology to the 57 Corvette, but even more simple because aircraft do not need the throttle response that cars do, which right. is true. Mm-hmm. Aircraft kind of spin at the same yes. relative RPM. We supply brand new mechanical port injection systems for new aircraft, including the Cessna 172, the mm-hmm. 182, the 206, several Pipers, and Robinson helicopters, among others. 
which Sesta, you, a Textron company. Yes, that's right. It is Textron. <laughs> I company. have stock in that. I you love do? Textron. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody go out and buy a Cessna. <laughs> Not going to happen. Uh, which use Lycoming, correct, and Continental Engines. Also true. <laughs> I have attached a diagram for your pleasure. Oh, nice. <laughs> and that of the Cleveland Moto Podcast crew. I'd like to interject. Anybody who includes a diagram for your pleasure is clearly on that same weird, freaky wavelength that we are. <laughs> I respect you. I tip my, I tip I my hat to you. Let's save that for when McElfresh is back here. Exactly. Right. On another subject, <laughs> I have been toying with the possibility of flying out for the AMA Vintage Weekend. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering if you could arrange transport for myself, either a rental bike or a seat in your motorhome, to Mid-Ohio for the weekend. I am a mid-50s ex-racer who has ridden bikes for over 50 years and feel a strong kinship with your crew. <laughs> well, we can break I that. How do you feel about IDI diesels? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. I would be bringing some good whiskey all right, and other libations for sharing with all. Let me know if this would be possible and how much cash I would need to bring. Seven thousand bucks. <laughs> Entry level, right? Entry thanks to level. thanks to all your group for the wonderful knowledge and entertainment you have given me. So that, that's super cool. Very nice. His company yeah. is called Precision Air Motive LLC. Uh, that's a pretty cool name, by the way. Air Motive is a badass yeah. name. He and needs to send us a uh, a sample of. Well, he that. sent us a fucking wall chart. So he sent us a wall chart. What is suitable yeah, for printing? Yeah. And yeah, they're all going to come over and look at it. But so what it does is it does show. All the various different circuits for the inlet air, the venturi suction, yep. the pressure below the throttle, the inlet fuel pressure, the metered fuel pressure, and the nozzle discharge pressure. And it takes it all the way from the fuel strainer and the fuel inlet all the way through the throttle body, you know, the air inlet itself, and the actual injectors as they go into the cylinders. That's greasy so, kid stuff. It is greasy kid stuff. It's super cool. And it's like, I like the fact That's that it's multicolored cool. and you can see all the different tracks. Yeah. So I might post this in our show notes because it is pretty bitchin' that his company does make a mechanical fuel injection system to That's this pretty, very cool. day. That's pretty cool. And that they prefer mechanical as opposed to electrical for reliability purposes. Does he get a free uh, decal? Well, he does. If he goes to mid-Ohio, we're going to bring a pocket full of those <laughs> motherfuckers. Yeah. So Precision Aeromotive is keeping it real in... Uh, Washington. So I think you sense us a, a, a real one. We'll give him a free. Uh, well, I mean, hey, room. there. I'm looking at this and I'm just saying, well, look, the idle valve is, you know, that basically is adjusted by your throttle linkage, right. and then you've got the pressure system itself, which, you know, we have plenty of devices on a motorcycle that can create this pressure that we need to get this uh, fuel injector to work. So why the fuck do we need an electrical fuel injector? Why can't we have a mechanical one? Airplanes do. So, yeah, that's cool. Mercedes and BMW used to use, uh, what's that, remember that old, what was it, Jet-tronic. CS? Jet-tronic. 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 It was mechanical, electronic. Yeah. Yeah. It had that, uh, that uh, diaphragm, diaphragm that, uh, yeah. adjusted yeah. fuel flow. What was that one called? But that was like common, ra- it was common rail. Common rail, right. Yeah, so I thought that was fun. So, so hopefully if he comes out. So here's what I'll tell you, is we're getting the RV. I think we're going to pick the RV up on Wednesday. Um, the RV will be in front of my house Wednesday and Thursday. We're rolling out to mid-Ohio. I talked to the lovely Serena Van Dyke of the AMA, who was nice enough to allow us to do our dissertation last year on carburetors. Mm-hmm. 
uh, well, asked the Misfits to do it, and then we promptly took it over because <laughs> job needed to be done correctly, and we fucking did it. So there. Um, so you guys, they're misfits. So yeah, they were all busy rescuing Dustin, so I had to go up there and give 45 <laughs> minutes on carburetors. Thursday uh, this year's, that's 4th of July, right? It is. The 4th okay. of July weekend holiday is AMA Vintage Days. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping that members of the Misfits can come out because they're more than welcome to crash in our shanty. Um, we've been, we're going to be doing three, two or three seminars this year um, that are going to be carburetor or fuel related. So we're going to have to put our heads together and come up with that. Well, now we have the mechanical fuel. And well, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a diagram there that we can use home. as a PowerPoint. Yeah, we're halfway there. And uh, so, yeah, Serena was great enough. So we're going to have our RV there, our rented RV. And you guys are all the more than welcome to show up. And anybody that wants to ride down with us, here's what I will say. Is if you can somehow get yourself to the Cleveland airport on Wednesday, I will make a personal commitment. To give your Uber driver a place to drop you off from the airport, either at my shop or at my house, and you can either stay in my driveway or my basement or whatever um, on the night prior to Mid-Ohio, and if you want to hang out with us, rock on. So we'll get you there somehow, and uh, Mid-Ohio is not to be missed. So Oscar and I will still be recovering from Isle of Man. T.T. Yeah, exactly. So there. We're going to come back with British accents. Fuck you. Cheerio. We're going to come back with British accents and Isle of Man tattoos. So there. That's right. Did you bring back any souvenirs from Isle of Man? Well, here's where this tire ran me over on my arm because I was leaning too close to the road. Yeah, exactly. And I got yelled at by everybody at the Isle of Man. So, yeah, so that's kind of what we're shaping up for this year. So we do want you guys to come out if you haven't been to Mid-Ohio before. Definitely try to make it. Four months away right now. It is, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's March, four months April, away. May, June, July. Yeah, so you've got four months to figure out how you're going to get to, to AMA Vintage Days. The We are going to, at some, we'll probably have something resembling a booth. We'll have some shit for sale. I did bring the GSXR out of the warehouse, so not 12 feet away from us is our AMA Vintage Days project bike. Uh, remember that it is will be... the sidecar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've been collecting parts. So right now we have a, a motorcycle. We're uh, we're dangerously close to a title. We're uh, we have we've yeah we've collected lots of metal and uh, some wheel spindles so we can make hubs you know so we can put a sidecar on. It. The only debate we're working on right now is should we just have one sidecar or should we do two one on each side? Again, bilateral bilateral sidecars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw those pictures about that. Didn't that look cool? It does. Scooter in the middle, yeah. sidecar on each side. Yeah. Looks kind of like a dick. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. looks like you could lean it, though, too. It looks like they were, like, cantered up. Oh, yeah, I don't know about that. but <laughs> I mean, it looked yeah. like it in the picture. Like, yeah, but like... again, if it's going to be like, if you're automatically intentionally applying, like, a 10-degree lean to each, like, the left and the right, so you can be like, turning left, look at how cool I can turn left. Turning right, transition point, now turning right. Yeah, but then you could have, like, you could, you could have people sitting like But, like, at the balance <laughs> point, at the exact... Have a teeter Yeah, at the exact balance point of, like, going 35 miles an hour straight down the road, dude on the left side, dude on the right side are equally up in the air, and the bike is on two wheels, you now have, like, 700, 800, 900 pounds on the main suspension of the motorcycle. And that's good when you're, like, momentarily flying a sidecar... But that ain't how you want to get to, like, Lexington. But are, are we going to yeah. put a, a hitch in the back for the booby bouncer? Or, uh, well, yeah. 
giddy up. Yeah, why not? <laughs> you can't go to Mid Ohio without a hitch. I mean, seriously, yeah. no matter what you drive, I think it a love a seat with two huge oh. tires on, like a, a real love seat with a frame. Again, and two huge, like two regular tires on the outside being pulled along would uh, be awesome. All you need is one of those car dollies. You know, you put the front car wheels dollies, up on, so idea. just a car dolly, ah, yeah. and you set a couch on it. Set a couch right on a car dolly. You got You're a done. frame that's a support. You're most the of the way there, there already. Yeah. <laughs> If anybody would like to do a Google image search, the phrase is El Caucho, E-L-C-O-U-C-H-O. This proves that anything in the world can be done with a Honda Elite CH-150, including a demonically possessed couch uh, that shoots fireworks. Warning, El Caucho shoots flaming balls. Uh, El Caucho is real, and Alex Tazzy is the creator of El Caucho, and he shall always be heralded as being like better than me because of El Caucho, if nothing else. He's also made El Caucho into a animatronic oh, horse, horse yeah. pulling uh, a buggy, an Amish thing. Yeah, but El Caucho is not dicking around. Uh, so everybody, when you are listening to this, driving your car, immediately park your car and Google search El Caucho or El Caucho sidecar. Uh, or just pull into the left passing lane and then and look, just, yeah. look it up on Steer with your feet and stuff. Yeah. It's cool. Right on. But, yeah, El Caucho is is not dicking around. So, uh, but that's one of those things that, like, that's a good deal. And instead of being, like, most sidecars are what you call uh, narrow, El Caucho can fit about six people on it. So, oh, yeah, oh, El Caucho is no oh, fucking around. Okay. El, El Caucho... Mm-hmm. Is a real place what for having fun, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and it's been it's been consistently engineered over the past how many years? I mean, it, it's gotten better, yeah. and you can fit as you can see, like um, two Americans and a dog fit no problem on El Caucho. That looks like skid free seating. Too. It is really good. It's really nice, and uh, it's the finest of uh, at least three Nagas were killed for their hides. <laughs> and sometimes you actually see him riding it. On the couch. Not oh, yeah, actually no. not riding the bike. He's, an, he's a skilled operator. He can sit in the couch, just totally chill, yeah. and just have one hand controlling just, the throttle from the seated position and rock 35 miles an hour on the uh, quarter-mile yep. oval that is band camp. Yep. So, you know. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd, love, I'd love to see the trail breaking on that. Mm. <laughs> Quite a bit, in fact, because as you know with the CH-150, this thing is the most overworked CH-150 in the history of bikes. So that yeah, it does have a leading link suspension. It does have so a leading link suspension. You hit the brakes, the That's front exactly tire right. goes down. Yep, and that is goes, exactly it. The suspension goes up. Like, yeah. This is the this is Nirvana. <laughs> Nirvana here is this. You know, it's a Niepner or something. It's a, it's some horrible oh Eastern Bloc motorcycle, but it has a Stibe uh, canoe style or traditional style sidecar, mm-hmm. one for the left and one for the right. You need one so. on the back too. <laughs> a sidecar trailer in the yeah, back. Yeah, fuck it. And back. we always joke about sidecar people being like my fetishy customers. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're all like, "Can I get more wheels?" That's what this is. What happens? This is what more wheels leads to. You end up with this piece of shit. This pretty know? much is wide as a car at that point. Way fucking wider than yeah. a car. I mean, the bike and the sidecar are pretty much as wide as a car. This is as wide as multiple cars. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, the only things we do need. Do you need to, a CDL for that? Yeah, yeah, you just you do. Yeah. yeah, you do. Yeah, a clown driving license. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, what I think is funny is they had at least the dignity to make sure that the left sidecar and the right sidecar didn't actually match each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They missed it by so little. Yeah, different like, personalities. They nearly for, yeah. missed. They nearly had it, but they couldn't find Fraternal twins. Two matching yeah. sidecars. But the <laughs> yeah. So we've got a couple of projects we need to work on. Uh, least of which is, if anybody uh, still, we still need property. Mm. Again, um, we need some space, end of June-ish kind of time frame. Uh, we do want to do Mid-Ohio, or we do want to do uh, Mods vs. Rockers, Rockers yeah. Camping Edition. End so. of June, you're saying? When, when are you guys going to, uh, <coughs> when's the Isle of Man? Isle of Man is <coughs> end of May, beginning okay, of June. First week month of, and that rolls directly into Bandcamp, which essentially rolls... There's the end of June is open for us, and then we go into mid Ohio, and then I think the end of July is also open for us. So, you know, we'll take an end of June. We'll take an end of July. Right. If somebody has twenty acres that they're not worried about us burning, and a and a mule. Well, you know, twenty acres and a half a mule. You could be right because forty acres, forty acres, forty acres comes with a mule. Right, right. Now you got to take like a little burrow, like a little donkey or zonkey. We can always do a zonkey. If you show up. If you show up with a burrow, you'll leave with a zonkey. Yeah. We've been waiting for this for oh, years. Yeah. We're prepared. We're even we're even ready to make a black lab into a zonkey. Yeah. Like if you even bring a dark colored animal to one of our events, you may leave with a zonkey because I need to paint something. Yeah, that's where we're headed. That's Kit. Anybody else got anything else? It seems wait, like a wait. podcast. Oh to yeah, me. yeah. What do yeah. you got? Steve's Steve? got a report. What my. Goldwyn. Wait a second. Yeah, we talked oh, about yeah, this yeah, last yeah. week, right? You're going you go? to buy the the widow Goldwyn. Yeah, the widow Goldwyn. The widow Goldwyn. Met her. Yeah, right? I met her. And she's very, very nice. Okay. She's a very. You nice think lady. she murdered her husband? Yes. Uh, yeah. No doubt about it. <laughs> she's like, I lost 240 pounds <laughs> in one day. <laughs> so I so I pulled up to the house, and it's a you know attached garage. I call her and I said, Well, I'm here. Okay. She opens the so I get out of my car. I'm walking towards the garage door. The garage door slowly opens, and the first thing I see, I mean, I see the gold. I see a car in the driveway. A titanium colored Goldwing. No, I actually that's not the first thing I noticed. Okay. The first thing I noticed is a bright green sticker on the license plate. Whoa, 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 whoa! A bright green sticker. Yeah. On the green. back of the on the license plate on the back of the motorcycle. Right. A bright green sticker. Right. So okay. All right. That said fifteen. Yeah. 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 All right. I'm with so you. It was so sitting there. The plates for, expired in fifteen, plates which means the sticker was put on in thirteen or fourteen. Right. Right. So the last so time it was on the road sudden, was thirteen or fourteen. As soon as I saw that, I got the. I, I usually get a feeling of dread when mm-hmm. I know a bike I'm not going to buy. At What's least two. At least two years, maybe four years since right. it's run. Right. Steve, yeah. Steve soiled himself as well. So, <laughs> it's on its side stand, right? Which is a no-no for me too. Of course not. Yeah. yeah. And the third thing I noticed uh-huh. is mildew growing on the back passenger's rest. I mean, like the back backrest on the yeah the vinyl on the back the vinyl. Of the there's break. mildew growing. Oh, on really? It. Yeah. And right then I said, and it's an attached garage. So was the garage moist? It was moist. Yeah. And so I thought, there's probably at least a few ounces of water in the crankcase. Oh, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. The gas tank's got at least 40 ounces and of water. And that in. smelled yeah. like 
like uh, I don't even know. It smelled like diesel fuel. Yeah. yeah. So you could smell the sulfur in it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so she had her uh, like a friend of her husband's was there who also owned a, a gold a Goldwing, uh, the exact same kind of gold. Okay. Wing. All right. And he was there to make sure I wasn't playing anything, you know, doing mm. any like making. He was there to keep you honest. So the first thing he says yeah. is, we threw the charger on the battery, but uh, I think we put the... We, we put the uh, we put the leads on the wrong pole, post. Who gives a fuck that battery quit being a battery right. three years ago? Right, right. So yeah, that battery was, I mean, a it was dead never short. going to start it, which is yeah. probably a good thing that the bike doesn't yes. get started. Of course, not. you yes. need to change the oil before you yeah. do anything yeah. with that bike. Right, exactly. So he turns it on and goes, you know, just the solenoid just buzzes, yeah. and you know, there's nothing. No, there's it's nothing. running off the start the right. battery charger. So I look at the thing and I'm like, oh, I'm already like, this is not a. I just want to be. I don't even want to be here. I don't want. <laughs> you know, it was. A, it wasn't a mistake. It Mistakes was a nice, have been made. It was a nice right. bike, but yeah. then I thought, you know, after I exam- the body was in decent shape, and the window was cloudy as all cloudy yeah. could get. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, how was this thing out sitting outside? Yeah. Was it you know whatever? So. Then we get down to talking about money. So she wanted, she believes that the, well, the first the guy pulls up Kelly Blue Book. Mm-hmm. And he shoves it, like, he shows it, like, right in my face. Kelly Blue Book says this is worth $11,750. And I said, well. It was running. I said, so I pull up Nat, NADA, yeah, yeah. and I right. show him. It says that the bike's worth between six and $9,200. Exactly. And I said, and my insurance company Based on the VIN number, right, says it's only worth seventy five hundred bucks. Exactly right. Yeah, and so I said, and I'm looking at, you know, if I took this to the to a dealer, it would be a thousand to two thousand bucks to get it back on the road. Oh God, I can tell you, we wouldn't do it for that. We would. At least. We probably would. We probably would deny it. We'd boot it out of here because there's too many unknowns. Right. I don't think you could find a dealer to touch it. What year is it? To 2008, so it's beyond that 10 year. They don't usually don't touch gold wings. Like, real hard to find a dealer that's going to look at a gold wing over 10 years old. Right. And even if you did find a dealer that's going to look at it for over 10 years old, it's a non runner. I don't know. I, I'm going to tell How you. How are the tires? The, if it was sitting in that spot for five years, those tires are, those tires are gone. They're not tires anymore. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. the tires are gone. Yeah. The battery's gone. It yeah. needs. Uh, Every fluid, every piece of rubber is changed. Yeah, Yeah. every and a seal that's sitting in the same spot. Yeah, I mean the seal. It'll probably. And do you mention it was moist? And I mentioned it was moist. Right, exactly. (laughs) I know how people love that word. How moist? (laughs) How moist is it? Well, it's so moist that the aluminum is ashy. (laughs) What's worse than moist, ashy aluminum? Not much. Yeah. So. She, I said, you know, we should both think about this. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to think about it longer because right. I'm not thinking about it anymore. No, I was done. I mean, so I got out of there and I right. was like, thank God. Yeah, this isn't she a purchase. This jump is a rescue. At that price. Yeah. Because I mean, I probably would have paid 7500 bucks. I probably would have paid 7500 bucks, which would have been a mistake. Right. But, you know, you get in the heat of the moment and you're like, oh, yeah. you know. I almost accidentally bought a 1994 BMW R1100 RS today, um, which is kind of like, it's essentially the first year for the new oil head motor. 
uh, telelever front end and stuff. I mean, they're great bikes. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. But it is a historical vehicle. I mean, it's 25 years old. It's fuel injected. It has ABS. But it's a, you know, 30,000 mile, 25 year old motorcycle. And it's, it's really hard. I mean, the guy wanted to trade it in on one of the new genuine G400Cs. And I said, well, what do you think your motorcycle is worth? Like, what are you willing to let me give you for it on trade? And I had already looked it up. And when you get into stuff like that, Kelly is so vague. Like, it literally gave me a report that said it was worth between $975 and (laughs) $5,000. What the fuck kind of range is that? I mean, thanks for nothing, dick. You know, you've given me no help whatsoever. But I did see that they were selling for around three, you know, and that they were being put into the hands of owners for about $3,000. And I said, well, what do you want for it? He goes, oh, you got to give me $3,500 for it. I'm like, well, if I give you $3,500 for it, that means I got to sell it for $4,500. And they're not selling for $4,500. They're selling for three grand. So I'm going to give you two grand for it. He was super insulted because he bought this bike brand new. So he had an emotional attachment to it. But when you look at it, you're like, okay. It's a good motorcycle. I mean, the 94 BMW R11 RS is actually a really good sport touring motorcycle. It does everything very well. It's got the telelever front end. It's got ABS brakes. They're good motorcycles. It's it's hard to say, oh, well, you know, those were notorious for X, Y, and Z. They're a fucking good bike. I think the only problem with those... The wind, uh, oil windows would pop out. The oil out. windows would pop out. Right. That was the biggest oh, problem. Yeah, yeah. If, no, that's, if, that's, yeah. if you gave it the beans, <clears throat> the oil window could pop out and you'd lose all your oil instantly. Catastrophic. They also said that if you jump tracks or something, that the drive shaft could. Oh. Could, oh, so uh, if you went airborne with it, it, went, could, it, it could go it, out of sequence? Yeah, it would uh, the spines could pull out of the differential, sure. and the, when they landed because back, they might uh, okay. So you'd overextend the swing arm, right? Which would then cause the drive shaft to disengage oh. from the output shaft, and it would essentially get right. And I'm not sure if that was in the unclocked. RSs, right, or in the RTs. Well, but one here's to you for jumping railroad tracks on your BMW <laughs> R1100 RS. I would never do it. I would never do that. So you know, it's. But it is that thing. We talk about this sometimes in the podcast where I looked and on Cycle Trader, there's like seven or eight of those bikes for sale for around 2500 bucks. And you go, 2500 bucks is Chinese scooter money. Yeah. Well, that's a kind of a lot of motorcycle for 1100, you know, 1100 yeah. cc's touring bike with luggage. Kind of a cool bike for 2500 bones. How many miles are on this thing? Yeah, 30 ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 30 ish. Not high, not low. Break in mileage. Break in mileage. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. Want something like that on a machine like that? Yeah. It's real. And, like, you buy the bike, you put a <clears throat> put a stringer of super glue around the oil site glass, and, you know, <laughs> sacrifice a chicken, change the oil, and go have fun. <laughs> well, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's a $2,500 motorcycle. I kind of like the old Airhead RSs. Those are kind of cool. They were, they were fine, but honestly, we all know that, like the oil head design works, it does work. Oh, no, better. no, I'm I just mean, saying, I right. just like the smaller, like, yeah. The, the right, the whole package of the motorcycle yeah. is just being smaller and everything else. But I felt bad today because the guy was like, Oh, well, you know, you got to give me 3500 for it. And I was like, You know what? I'll give you a three, but I feel like I'm giving you charity because I don't think I'm going to find a buyer for over three for that bike, right? So it's kind of a weird deal. 
So yeah, it's not personal. I mean, people take it personally, and it's like yeah. you know, I bought that African twin for like thirteen five or whatever yeah. I paid yeah. for it. You know, and I know now it's probably worth seven or eight. Yeah, like I said, I'm gonna go down and buy that so, one on Wednesday for like sixty four hundred. Right. So yeah, no, no, no. no I mean, <laughs> but it's not insulting to me. No, that's it's just like, what it is. You know, this is the way um, it goes. You're, right. you're, you're, you're gonna you're, lose. You're eating it. Yeah. You buy a new bike. You eat the the initial. I mean, you're losing a ton of money. <laughs> but if you want it, you know, it's like. There's a very bad game of Chris Smith twisting my arm happening over here. Not I'm a peach. chance. I don't see a whole lot of twisting going on myself. No, fuck you. I'm this peach whatever I'm drinking. Schnapps. My so, God. So circling back to Steve Arena's 2008. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Goldwing. Gold the widow Goldwing. The, the, <laughs> the widow swinger. Gold member. Yeah. Uh, Kent, now you're, you say you're going down to the auction. Yeah, I'm going to go down to the so, auction. So yeah. I want you to keep a particular eye out for gold swingers down there. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Because maybe yeah. you can find a unit for the Stever here. Yeah. So he doesn't have to haul his wife along on the highway. I'm not going to bring anything a, back for him except for an F6B. Because realistically what's going to happen is I'll buy an F6B for the right price. He'll buy it off of me. He'll get sick of it in nine months and I'll get it back. <laughs> You know what I'm really hot for, though, now? I yeah. want to wait two years, and I want a new gold wing. A new wing. I want yeah, a, new a new wing. wing. The kinder, just, gentler, lightler wing. I want yeah. the one that is the F6B now, just the, they call it the gold wing, yeah. and it's the F6B. Right. But you know what? That bike, I was at the dealership because I found out that my Super Cubs delayed another two months. What? So they, it was supposed to, I was supposed to pick it up uh, the last week in February. Wait so. a second. Have they run out of children to work in these factories in Thailand? I guess. <laughs> what I, the hell, he man? Said that, he said that Honda's delayed everybody, and they're pushed back to the end of April, and that, uh, the, that the monkeys, they, you know, they order six, and they, may, they might get one because they wow. can't get any of the monkeys. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. I know. It's yeah. insane. So... So when I was in there, I was looking at they had a couple of good deals. They had a, a rally. I mean, I like the I like the, the rally, rally raid. 50. Yeah, is that what no, it's called? No, the rally raid is what it's a package that they can convert the CB five hundred Xs. Oh, that's a rally raid. That's a rally raid. That's worth a few thousand bucks more. Than, okay, all right. This is the the two fifty version of the two fifty rally. Like okay, a, a little more suspension, a bigger gas tank. Yeah. You know, it's cooler colors, front, the front ends, you know. It's kind of like an Africa Twin 250. Exactly. Okay. And I liked them. And right. originally, before I bought the Africa Twin, I was looking at that bike, and I, because I liked, I mean, 250s, I like the, I like 250s. Of course, I mean, I like, yeah. They're right. easy to whip around, and it's good yeah. around town, and whatever. So, so he's got a really good deal on that now. And he's got, a, like, a, a, what do they call them when they're non-current? Uh, exactly the word they yeah, use. Non-current, yeah, non-current. That's a non-current. And right. he's got a non-current uh, NC750X, which okay. I think is so much nicer looking than the 700s. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I could make a deal and get both, like, get by two for the price of one. And then I'd, but yeah. I'm just talking on my ass. Because <laughs> I mean, I would do it, I yeah. mean, and I probably will end up buying that that two fifty, right? Because yeah. I think we were talking the other week about I have I have two two fifties. I have an XT two fifty, right. which I like, yeah, and I have a K, I have a mint KLR, and they're both historical vehicles, right? And they're both right. historic, but I yeah. mean, they're one kick bikes. They start right. I would up, keep they, them, yeah. And, and but the problem is, I don't want to kick. I don't. Lo- I am. You're tired of Kickstarter. No, the the Kickstarter is like up to my freaking waist, but I'm trying to kick it. 
just anymore. jumping on it. <laughs> no, I'm saying the yeah. especially the Kawasaki. The the Yamaha's not too bad. Right. The Kawasaki is it, like I don't know. The Kickstarter's like four feet long. Oh, I'm looking for a little fun trail bike to yeah. like plot like plots around on and have fun on. I'm not looking for anything without a button. Well, that's like, what I'm saying. I yeah. just I, I'm, I'm not going to buy old, anything that doesn't have a button on it. It's just and cranky. And cranky. <laughs> Fuck you, I'm a curmudgeon. Leave me alone. But I want something yeah. to tow with my we've all, Ural. We've all gotten old and soft, you know. We yeah. yeah. Electric start, fuel oh, injection. Start. Yeah. Well, I had some kid come GPS, in today, and he's like, he's like, I didn't know you guys did old Harleys. And I was like, we don't do old Harleys. And he goes, well, this one. And he's looking at my police bike. Oh, yeah. And I was like, okay. And so he's just, you know, anyway, kid, he's in his mid-40s. And he's looking around, and I was like, what year do you think that Harley Davidson? And he goes, "Well, like seventies, right? Like mid seventies." And I went, "It's a two thousand and thirteen and a half. Like it's you know, it's a it's a two thousand thirteen bike." Had the biggest smile, right? And I was just giggling. I was like, like "That's what I'm I was like." So for. you think this motorcycle's from the seventies? And he's like, "Absolutely, it's not from the seventies." And I was like, "No, it's literally it's one of the newest things in this particular room, you know." <laughs> and he's like, "Get out of here! No, that's got to be an old bike." And I was like. Mission accomplished. Because that's what I wanted was I wanted the look of an old police bike, but I wanted all the the modern conveniences, the amenities. Did you see the new Harley Davidson? They're doing a sport bottle with you just to dribble some oil under it. You know, (laughs) they're doing the the Harley Davidson Electrolyte Standard. So they've taken a Harley Davidson and they've de fuckified it. So they've taken all the audio components out of it. They've eliminated all the stuff and they've got the price down to like under 20 grand on Electroglide because what they've, they've left the windshield there but they've taken everything taken everything mm. out of the windshield so they left the bat wing fairing but it's, yes but it has nothing in it and so it's What's this the well the, the idea is that <laughs> Harley you, Davidson you put the stuff in it when you go there and put right, more yeah, extra right, money right, for we're going to sell it to you empty and you can fill it up here <laughs> but the idea is that they there's this sort of thing with Harley Davidson is that they they have the reputation now of being full of shit. You know, like they're just full of crap. Like too many things, audio systems and navigation systems Features. and rush rushmore systems and everything else. And that I guess they're trying to cater to a less spendy audience. So they're doing their economy electroglide. So the economy electroglide is a naked has, glide? Well, almost. I mean, it's basically like... It's stripped down. It's a stripper, right? We used to call them strippers when we were kids. You'd take the car, and you'd buy the Buick, and it was the Buick Riviera, but it was the stripper version. So it had, like, the AM radio in it, and the non-power windows, and you'd put your own... Yeah, you'd put in your own shit. And an FM radio underneath, and an 8-track player. Hang it there? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and that was the stripper line. Right. Yeah. What you got? Oh, I've got a Riviera base model. <laughs> oh really? It's the base model, huh? Yep. Wind up windows, you know. Air conditioning? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Carpeting? Nope. Uh, not really. Yeah, that's it. Headliner? Just barely. And like I think that's what Harley's doing now is they've offered this new motorcycle and they're they're kind of making a big deal about it about it's the standard or the stripped down version of Electroglide. Is this to meet a price point, do you think? I think that it's probably we're trying to take a step away from you can get this bike as a $35,000 version of this bike. We're also now offering a sub $20,000 version of this bike. Which is smart. Well, again, what did I buy? I'm, I'm not hip. I'm not cool. Don't ever buy what I'm buying. If you're buying what I'm hmm. buying, you're wrong. I didn't go out and look for a Road Glide Ultra. 
I went out and looked for a police bike. What I wanted was a comfortable riding position and an authentic Harley Davidson. Mm -hmm. I didn't want I didn't want the touring pack. I didn't want anything extra. I didn't want a stereo. I've got <laughs> I got a police horn and a police siren, and I'm pretty happy about it. As mm -hmm. soon as I get the PA system, I'm going to be super happy. You would right? think that people would buy your bike right there? Yeah. Because it, it looks it looks more classic than the right. classic. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Right. Plus, it's going to start easily, and you're right. going to have so many less problems with it than I. The reason I chose that particular year, that particular model, was after all the research I've done, looking at the past 25 years of Harley Davidsons. That's the one that came in at the perfect tipping point between the price and the reliability. So the price and the reliability was there, and it has the aesthetic of a much much older machine. Right. So I would love to own a 50s or 60s Harley-Davidson police bike to look at it in my driveway as art. Well, but I wouldn't want to maintain it. I wouldn't want to have to like, oh, I'm getting on the freeway, but I really only have a four-speed transmission. And I really only have enough power to kind of go 70, and that's going to feel weird. I can do whatever I want with this. That 70s Gucci police bike was nice, too. Yeah, that was fun, and I enjoyed it, and I sold it at the right time. Uh, last week, I did take this thing out and do a series of cone-centric circles in our parking lot, which you can see the way I have modified the floorboards. <laughs> I have left a lot of Milwaukee steel in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. <laughs> I didn't do those circles in my own parking lot. I did them in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. Dunkin' Donuts parking lot now leans to the right a little bit <laughs> because I use that Har down. yeah I use that Harley Davidson to move a lot of their driveway over <laughs> and it's remarkable how maneuverable those fucking things are. Well, you've seen those guys do those yes. police courses. Oh, yeah. oh and, too. I mean, yeah. So. yeah, and the people were coming out of the donut shop going, "So do you work for the police department?" I'm like, "Nope," and they're like, "So what are you doing?" I'm like, "Circles, figure eights, donuts." Well, that's what I said. I said I, I, was, I, I heard that you can get donuts here, and I decided I'd make my own. And that's what I did. I just did donuts and circles in the parking lot. And I was, I got down to the point where I could be at about three miles per hour, full left lock, full right lock, and be floorboard totally folded up and on the crash bar and still have oh. control of the motorcycle. Nice. And just ride the crash bar. Just ride the crash bar in a circle. <laughs> And there's no room for your foot anymore. You got to put your pick your foot up. It just because the floorboards go batwing up. They're just folding yeah. up completely. But the bike is still completely in control, and you can transition it from that full left lock on the crash bars to full right lock on the crash bars, just like that, and never lose control like of the you motorcycle. Said you need to have a fold up brake pedal though. I well, mean, that's, that's what I that said. I got my foot. Be, yeah. So I got my foot yeah. pinched, and I almost cra Well, I did kind of crash it. But you know, different kind of crash. Well, nobody saw me, so it wasn't really a crash. Doesn't count. <laughs> but I got my at my foot on the floorboard on the right hand side, and I got my foot between the folding floorboard and the non folding brake lever. Ouch! And it's dumb because the Suzuki I checked, the Suzuki has a hinge on the brake lever on the boulevard. The Yamaha Roadliner has a, a hinge on the brake lever. So if your foot is between the folding floorboards and the brake pedal, it folds out of the way and doesn't crush your foot. My fucking, I got a big bruise on the top of my foot because my foot got crushed between the floorboard and the brake lever, I'm, the brake pedal. I'm surprised that didn't hurt. It hurt a little, but what <laughs> hurt more was the fact that I was leaned over all the way to the right. And when it happened, it hurt, so I stopped going forward, 
which means mm. we all fell over together. <laughs> More weight. Yeah. So me and this, yeah. me and this white and black elephant over here all took a dive. We took a header in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. That's like, what they came out to ask you. At about. like almost negative miles per hour. A puff of powdered sugar before it was done. And uh, and I did. I, I when I was on the ground, I had to kind of push the bike up to get my foot out because my foot was wedged Oof. underneath the bike. And so I was like, well, that's a design problem right there. So if, if I do that again, I'm going to have to remember to move yeah. my foot further back so it doesn't get pinched under the brake lever, mm. the brake pedal. So anyway, you live, you learn. That's a thing. But they are remarkably maneuverable. I can say that I can get like almost Lambretta-like or Vespa-like yeah, yeah. turn radiuses with the, with the Electroglide. Nice. With the the uh, cop that I bought my king. RTP from yeah. were so mad when they, they switched to Harleys. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah. They had BMWs for yeah. the, you know, whatever. They always they had always had BMWs. And he was so mad when they switched to Harleys, he pulled the car, he pulled the bike into the shop. Yeah. Right in the corner, and he said he just left it there. And so <gasps> when I bought the bike, yeah. the guy's like, it's in the back corner of the shop. So, you know, so-and-so, officer so-and-so said, fuck you, <laughs> you know, like... I'm putting the bike in the back corner. As far as it can go. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, the, why are you switching, why are you taking away my right. BMW? Yeah, and then I, he stormed out. And so the thing was covered like in a, a half inch of dust from like like shop dust and everything else. And it was stuffed in the back of the thing. So I had to wheel it out. I brought, you know, air and inflated the tires. Oh, okay. It was like not yeah. touched. The guy literally rode it there. What year was that? When you had that RTP, that was in 2004? Right, and that yeah. was like, Two, three, or I've had that for three years, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So he said that three years ago that he just rolled in the back and just, like. When I bought up. my first RTP, I didn't have the balls to rodeo it. Like I was like, it's it's taller, right? So it's a taller bike and it leans further. So I just didn't have the balls to rodeo it like this thing. So like I have no problem on the. Well, the seat height's way better. Right? Yeah, and this thing, it all feels like it's all under me anyway. Yeah. And if like anything goes bad, I just put my foot down and I'm off of it. So I didn't, I never, I never really pushed the BMW because from left crash bar to right crash bar, and the BMW's got the nice big crash bars on the front and the back, from left crash bar to right crash bar is like a long fucking way, man. No, it and is. When you're on top of degrees. that. Oh, yeah. Well, when, you're, <laughs> when you're up on top of the BMW at the top point, and you look down to the left and down to your right, like you're like, that's further than a bar stool. If I fall off of here, I could really get hurt. Yeah. Whereas the the Road King, yeah, the Road King is more like <laughs> you're on a milking stool. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and the Road King on its side stand is already most of the way on the ground anyway. Yeah. So you're like, all right, well, that's that, fine. That bike's only fallen over one time. Oh, really? And it wasn't even. I wasn't even on it. I was low. It was. I was up in New York. I rode up to New York yeah. one night, and I, it was totally loaded. Yeah, and my. Kid, as, as we all got are. there, my kid calls me and says, You're, my dog's dying. Okay. I'm like, oh, oh. you know. Right. And she, he said, I think the dog's going to be dead by the morning. So I said, I'll come home right in the morning. Oh, shit. So in the morning I woke up, I was loading my bike. Yeah. And at like 8.15, I was walking away from the bike. I was 50 feet away from the bike. Yeah. And it just went, yeah. fell over. Right. Patrick calls me and says, Snickers just died. Right. Your dog just died. 
So it was almost like Snickers yeah. knocked my bike over. Exactly. So, <laughs> hey, you. You don't, have to, you don't have to drive, yeah. dog. <laughs> I like that. That's the best dog ever. Well, if you're if you were thinking about driving home to see me, you don't need to. I've kicked your bike over yeah. for you. Stay where you are. I'm dead. There's nothing you can do. Well, I rode home and then get here later. I put her in the back of my truck. Yeah. Took her out to the property and cremated her. Yeah, there you go. Because I'm not going to pay 400 bucks to cremate. Well, a dog. So. Yeah. And Patrick, we're watching. Snickers get cremated <laughs> on this pallet. Like, it was like one of those Mayan. Yeah, it's a. With, like, uh, I had like 10 pallets and like, yeah. gasoline. And the flames are were, like 40 feet in the air because we put too much gas on it. <laughs> so, the just, Overland Fire Department. And, and a log 20 feet away. So, and I kid you not. Yeah. The fire was so hot. The radiant heat. The radiant heat lit. Our log was 20 feet away from the sink, and it was burning. So I think we achieved ash bone, like right. boned ash. I, right? I, exactly. But yeah. we were sitting there, and my son it was and a I true were inhalation. sitting together, yeah. watching it, and he's like, it kind of smells like a barbecue. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, it was like... Poor <laughs> Snickers. Again, Poor Snickers. you totally overdid it. <laughs> That's it. But, yeah. I mean, she was a good dog, and yeah. I wish I should have cloned her. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, you've done that, though, right? Clone animals, yeah. Well, yeah. You clone yourself. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. For spare organ parts. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, right. At any moment, I can cash any of these kids in if I need a kidney. <laughs> That's it. So just letting you know, Junior, don't get too comfortable with that liver. That's it. I'm trying to throw so hands almost worn out right Trying now. to throw a hurt on this one? I got dibs on that liver. Right. Yeah. It's the venture thing, you know. The, the boys are just sources of spare parts. Yeah. Well, that's cool. All right. Well, I guess that was a podcast. I hope you learned something. Uh, if and not, if you didn't, uh, write, write in and tell us about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> we, invite, we, invite we invite you to have intercourse with your headgear. Uh, so, yeah, cool. So, uh, anybody got anything else? Mm-hmm. No, let's play us out, man. Ride fast and take chances. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-